Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. It's your DC Spotlight for the week of December 28th, 2021. It's the last week of the year. Hope you all had a Merry Christmas, if that's what you celebrate. Happy Hanukkah. Uh, crazy Kwanzaa. I don't, I don't know what the saying is, but uh, yeah, it was good. good Christmas around here. I uh, got a big fat smoker from my wife. Uh, that's not a euphemism. It's literally a big giant smoker to smoke meats and whatnot. So uh, happy about that. Uh, how was your Christmas, Rocky? It was good. Good. I got a, I got a nice big leather duffel bag that I needed for uh, uh, just for for uh, travel and for back and forth to the office. It was my wife finally searched and found one that was economical because they're kind of pricey. So she she's good at finding a good deal. So yeah, nice. I got that and. Uh, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of bottles and alcohol and chocolate and food. So it was good. It was good. I can't complain. Cool, cool deal. Yeah. Uh, and also the the, uh, the listeners got something for me. Uh, I want to thank everybody for making this month, December 2021, the uh, biggest month in terms of downloads for the Comic Source podcast. Uh, I was not expecting that. Nice. Uh, appreciate that. Uh, this last August, we had some pretty big and popular interviews that kind of set the record. I, I didn't think I would approach that record again soon, but basically, I think it's validation, Rocky, that uh, our plan next year for the Spawn Daily show is uh, is in good hands. People seem to really respond to the <laughs> full days of Spawnmas and want more Spawn. So right. we're, we're happy to bring that to you. As I said on social media recently, uh, a day without Spawn is like a day without sunshine. And I'm sure the the Todd father, Todd McFarlane, would agree. So, uh, look for that uh, in the first of the year. We'll see how that uh, how that goes. Uh, anyway, we're here to talk about DC Comics today, though. You know, I, I was thinking about this. I may or may not have mentioned it previously on the show, but typically, as we wind down toward the end of the year, last couple weeks, last couple two, what used to be Wednesdays, but now I guess Tuesdays and Wednesdays of the year tend to be a little bit smaller, a little break on the pocketbook, a lot of stuff going on. Not a lot of books, but that's not the case this year with DC. I think we had 13 books last week. I, I think there's 17 or 18 today. Let's see, 3, 6, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. Yeah, 15 books today. So, yeah, yeah DC is definitely not giving us a break at all. But overall, I, 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 I wasn't really impressed with the books this week. I felt like a lot of the books this week were a little hard to follow. I mean – it's almost maybe it's because I have so much going on in my brain with the holiday stuff that I'm not remembering what's going on before. But I felt like I was sort of confused by a lot of the narratives of, and things that were going on. I had to stop and think like, wait, what happened in the last issue? I don't know. Things just didn't flow real, uh, real smoothly for me between previous issues and these issues uh, this week. Not that it was a bad week uh, and there's some spectacular art, but I don't know. It just I I found myself confused by a lot of these stories and i that's not typically the case how how did you feel rocky was it just me uh well i well i i, I you can say it was just me it's fine <laughs> well i i actually i maybe it is just you I, i've been enjoying most of it i i'm i'm i will admit still being a little bit lost with teen titans academy uh but the rest i, I felt good about like i had a generally a fairly good feeling about most of this stuff i really enjoyed swamp thing green hell um so, 
yeah, so I, I generally had a good time with it. I think uh, I continued to enjoy DC for the most part, and I'm not completely lost, although I do have some concerns moving forward. But but we'll see. I, I, I think I know where you're coming from, though, because in a sense, uh, there's this feeling with DC that, you know, as much as they're kind of headed in a certain direction, sometimes it's it's not entirely clear if if I if the right hand knows what the left hand is doing <laughs> at DC in terms of uh, the the overall narrative approach of of the entire line. So sometimes I I end up scratching my head trying to see if they have a larger game plan in, in motion here, but uh, but we'll see. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case when it comes to the next Batman. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we've talked about that in the past. But anyway, let's kick it off with Action Comics number 1038. This is from writer Philip Kennedy Johnson. Miguel Mondoka is taking over as a regular artist. Adriana Lucas on colors, Dave Sharp on letters. We recently saw Miguel's work on the uh, the last JLA story, which was absolutely fantastic. He has a similar sensibility to Daniel Sampier. So I think he's a... You know, a good choice to to take it over. Uh, that being said, his art is different enough from uh, from Daniel's that that you certainly notice it. Uh, but I, I think he's done a fantastic job, um, and, and it's sort of interesting. There's not a whole heck of a lot of action. The first couple of pages are it's nothing but action. Um, some very kinetic looking uh, scenes, basically, as uh, one of Superman's teammates. I don't even remember what her, her name is. She was Leah's buddy who uh, who went along and, and joined the, the authority. Uh, she breaks out, and uh, there's some pretty great action scenes from uh, from Miguel. Um, as far as the, the majority of the story, yeah, it's sort of not a lot happens. A little bit of, of setup, um, or a lot of bit of setup, I guess I, I should say. And I, again, I have sort of mixed feelings. I, I know that Philip Kennedy Johnson is is trying to give us a feel of this being this this epic story, um, and I never thought I would find myself agreeing with Midnighter so much, but yet I I do. You know, he he was one of the few of the authority that didn't get captured and or killed, um, and he actually goes to break Superman out. And Superman's like, no, I can't leave. I have to free all these people. Uh, being that you are at a weakened state, Superman, and members of your team have all been either killed or captured, I think in this case, discretion is the better part of valor. And I 100% agree with you that these people need to be rescued. Maybe go back to Earth and get an army to come back. Get your friends, get Supergirl, get Batman to come up with a plan. It, it you know, again... It, not to play script doctor, because then there would be no story, right? I'm, I'm defeating the whole purpose of what Philip Kennedy Johnson here is doing, but it, it doesn't. This doesn't ring very true to me. Um, and and you know the fact that it had to start with sort of the the whole plot point, which was planted way back in the very first issue that Philip Kennedy Johnson wrote that this is a Superman that's underpowered, right? Because the true Superman, this wouldn't be that big of a deal. I mean, we've seen Superman fight Mongol plenty of times. Yes, Mongol is, uh, you know, a threat and, and one of the more powerful villains that Superman fights. But at the end of the day, a fully powered Superman against Mongol, Superman's going to win. Uh, and so in order to, to make this work. And so, you know, it's it's like, okay, I'll buy that. For whatever reason, there's some radiation sickness or whatever. Superman's being depowered. Okay, I'll buy that. 
but ha- in, now I got to buy the fact that Superman's not smart enough to say, yeah, I need to leave and come back. <laughs> you know, it, it's yeah. all these things are sort of piling up in order to make the story work. There's all these conditions and it's, it's getting to be a little much for me. So I, I don't know. Jury's still out. Like I said, I have mixed feelings. The art, I don't have mixed feelings about. The art is absolutely fantastic. Adriana Lucas colors work very, very well. Um, for, for speculators, I know Rocky always like to call it out. There's a, a new character that we're introduced to here. Um, Krill Ux, who seems like j- just based on the fact of how he's presented when he shows up on the page, how he gets his own sort of panel with no background to sort of make him stand out. I feel like he's somebody that's important or, or will be important going forward. So that's probably somebody to, to pay attention to. So, I, yeah, I don't know. Like I said, the best thing I can say is I, I'm just not sure. Mixed feelings. I want to like it more than I do. Uh, just Kennedy Johnson just asking me to, to – he's just asking me to buy in a little bit too much. Uh, you know, one thing, okay, two things, okay. Now it's like three and four things in order to make the story work, and it's it's kind of becoming a little hard to swallow. But then again, it's a book about a guy who can fly and shoot laser beams from his eyes. So what the hell? <laughs> of course, it's hard to buy. So I don't know. I you probably like, enjoyed it more than me. I'm guessing. Well, I I enjoyed. I I I like the 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 depowering. I think uh, it, at least where I come from in terms of enjoying this story is that I actually like the depowering because it. Uh, I like the fact that this Mongol, this is the Mongol who is, not the Mongol who was, and he's more intelligent. I mean, he's more tactical. He's more strategic. He's utilizing a yellow, uh, a red sun to depower Superman and to kill him and then to keep him alive and just sort of keep Superman alive enough to continue to torture him and and to say to every all the theologians and all his slaves that are under him, you know, I have Superman and I have Superman in chains. And uh, this is your hero. This is your would-be savior. And look what look at the fate that befalls anyone that would dare defy Mongol who is. And he's toying with Superman and, and keeping him alive with a little dose of maybe yellow sun and then probably, you know, with the red sun to, 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 to uh, kill him. And by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm factoring in some of what we saw in Future State. In Future State... Uh, in that future state issue where we got glimpses of Superman as a gladiator, he was killed in the future state issues and he seemed to be implied that he was killed and resurrected and killed and came back because Mongol kept killing him and bringing him back, killing him and bringing him back to kill him again in the gladiatorial arena. And uh, you you make a good point about uh, where I kind of agree with you that I don't quite agree with Superman staying there. Like when, when Midnighter is literally there, I mean, Midnighter is a, fantastic fighter it, it makes sense that midnighter would be the one guy to escape and he's he can actually take superman with him why wouldn't superman leave with him and go and plan and go get the justice league as if the justice league wouldn't come back with superman i mean i mean right now bendis has the justice league battling the the, the royal flush gang i mean give me a break i mean the royal flush gang's not a priority right now i realize continuity's a little wonky right now in the dc universe and coordinating all these titles but seriously so but but uh that's that's not PKJ's fault, the writer Philip Kennedy Johnson here. He's doing a good job of of making this a uniquely Superman story. And frankly, I kind of don't want the Justice League in it. I I, I remember John Burns' uh, Superman when he was on Warworld back back in the late '80s. There, I, I love that run. It's a classic. It's a classic story. This very much has sort of like a Russell Crowe gladiator feel to it. 
And in that respect, maybe some readers might, and maybe yourself, Jace, maybe feel that's a little bit tropey, maybe, but I'm kind of enjoying it. And I kind of like the, the Superman here. He's got, he's got something to come back from, from and something to prove. And, you know, given the fact that we have a lot of controversy and, and a lot of, I would say, sort of, I, I think, uncomfortable subjects when we talk about Superman's son of Kal-El. I mean, that's a that's a comic book that seems to be controversial. It's a very different type of comic book. This is classic Superman coming back, and I just I just I love it. And and you you said it with the art. Mandonka's art is absolutely fantastic. Uh, we got a new character, Krillux. Uh, th- this here, I'm I'm really curious to see where this is going. And I love the fact that I don't know what to expect with the other members of the Authority. The fact that I'm not as familiar with these other members of the Authority, I'm familiar familiar with Apollo and Manchester Black, I guess, but I like that they bring very different things to the table. And because they're a little bit more prone to use lethal force and Mongol is clearly raising the anti by killing, I really like where I see this might be headed. Uh, and the, the real test here is, is the Authority going to be able to continue to help Superman and and not violate their code against killing, which they promised Superman they wouldn't do? Is Superman going to be able to maintain his own code against killing to to win at the end of the day? And I suspect he will, but I'm, I'm prepared to give uh, PKJ the benefit of the doubt here because so far, uh, I really like this, uh, this story that he's weaving. Yeah, I'll agree with you. It does have a very Superman feel. And uh, one thing, so when Superman was on, War World in the late 80s. It was actually Roger Stern who was on the title at that point, not John Byrne. But I apologize. John Byrne, yeah, but John Byrne was the reason why it, it happened because because John Byrne was the one that had Superman kill the Phantom Zone criminals in that alternate dimension. Right. Where yeah. the proto-Supergirl was. Then Byrne left the title and the editors are like, there has to be consequences because Byrne had, these, had Superman kill these people and Superman doesn't kill. And that's what led to Superman having this mental breakdown and eventually caused him to exile himself, which, yeah, I love that. I love that story. Exile is one of my favorite Superman stories of all time by Stern. And this is borrowing from that quite a bit. And that is probably coloring my, my outlook on it a little bit. I've said before it's been done before and, and better, but, but you're right. I mean, this does have a very Superman feel and you're also right about the Mongol who is being very much more kind of kind of cunning than the Mongol who was, you know, the whole idea that his world is powered by red suns. Because not only is it weakening Superman, it needs to be there because it's it weakens the theologians who maybe don't even realize that if they're under a yellow sun, they'd have powers, right? Like we saw when uh, I can't remember her name now, the theologian that that went to Earth, Theola, and, Theola, yeah, Theola, right, Theola, exactly. So, so yeah, I guess I guess we'll wait and see. Like I said, mixed feelings, but I I mean I am enjoying this more than any of the Bendis stuff. <laughs> I'll say that, yeah. uh, and there's a there's a backup also. Uh, Martian Manhunter, A Face in the Crowd, Part 2, from writer Sean Aldridge. Adriana Mello handles the art. Hi-Fi on colors. Dave Sharp on letters. This is a, this is one of those where, like I said, I, I'm not – it's not that I'm confused because not that much happened last time. But I, I just – I don't know the po- – we're two parts in, and I don't know the point of the story yet. It, I just I, – I don't know. It, it's – maybe it's because it's such a, such a short – you know, he only gets eight pages. Martian Manhunter's got some new – um, civilian identity, I think, that we're not necessarily privy to yet. And he goes hunting for an artifact for some reason in a museum and ends up being attacked there by um, a new a new human flame. And, and we do find out his origins. 
Um, and then he ends <laughs> Martian Manhunter ends up meeting a little girl outside who maybe is more than she appears. She calls herself Zook. Um, yeah. And she's like, uh, yeah, I've been expecting you. This is on my patrol. Like what? She looks like a little eight year old girl. So yeah, again, I just, again, not, not sure what to expect. Not sure what the point of the story is yet. So it's a little, I don't want to say off putting, but like, I'm not, I'm not invested yet. And, and I know it's a challenge with only eight pages, but I, I hate to point to, you know, Rom V again, his justice league dark, but he does a great job in, in a limited amount of pages. So it is possible that it can be done. Um, but it's not, this is not hooking me. Like, I, I don't know why I'm supposed to care yet about this story. Yeah, I, I, I kind of agree. I'm not really sure where the story is going, although I am intrigued a bit uh, from it. Uh, uh, I notice again, Adrian Omello's art is actually quite good here. I like the art. I actually like her art better here than I do when she's a, <laughs> uh, drawing for, for Wonder Girl. Uh, when she's trying to copy Joel Jones' style, but I like it here, and even and, and I'm I'm curious to know who this Zook is. I'm actually more, you know, Martian Manhunter has always been a, a a character that I struggle to find interesting at times. You know, I know that he had his twelve issue, he had his twelve issue um, miniseries there that was written by uh, Steve Orlando, uh, but I think it and I I actually kind of even enjoyed the story in that. Unfortunately, the art it had, uh, I think a lot of people were turned off from it because of uh, R Riley Rosmo's art for Martian Manhunter. But even though I, I thought it actually, I thought it was, was quite good. But Martian Manhunter, is the, it's good to see the human flame. It harkens back to human flame was the one who played a role in uh, the death of Martian Manhunter and leading into Infinite Crisis. So maybe this is going to be playing a role and leading somehow into that as well. You, you never know. Uh, we got we, we're going to be reviewing Deathstroke Incorporated number four this week as well, uh, where uh, Libra uh, Libra is is sort of rising, and then Libra, of course, worked with uh, Darkseid uh, during uh, <clears throat> Infinite or leading into Final Crisis. Sorry, but so uh, again, we'll see where all this leads. It's uh, we sort of talked about before how some of this stuff. Might maybe it is its own continuity, but maybe it's leading to something larger. It's it's hard to say, and uh, you know, it can be a little bit frustrating. Maybe piecing this all together, we'll have to see where it leads. Yeah, agreed. Uh, all right, let's move on. DC versus Vampires number three is up next from writer James Tynan the fourth and Matthew Rosenberg. Art, color, and uh, main cover by Otto Schmidt. Letters are by Tom Napolitano. We have a variant cover by Francesco Mattina. And we know we saw last issue ended with uh, Green Lantern killing Flash, which was pretty shocking. Uh, and this issue picks up with the Justice League uh, finding Flash's body and uh, beginning an investigation. So what are your thoughts on this, Rocky? Uh, just a moment here. I This one, uh, I, I got to give uh, credit to uh, Tinian and Rosenberg here. I didn't expect this uh, story to go in the direction that it did. Uh, I really liked, I really liked how they're setting Batman up. How Green Lantern, Hal Jordan, Hal Jordan as a vampire is a devious bastard. I mean, of course, we we saw what he did with uh, Zan, with the, half of the Wonder Twin there, <laughs> with gave him a nice little blender and made a made a water juice uh, out of him, and then it ends up killing Barry Allen. 
And uh, we know that Batman is aware that the vampires are slowly trying to take over the earth or take, uh, you know, infiltrating the heroes and the villains. But Batman's not leading it on because he, you know, Batman's Batman. He, we know, we know from last issue, Batman notified, has advised the other members of the Batman family uh, as to what his suspicions are and what's going on. And Batman is keeping some things close to the chest. He still has a vial of Lex Luthor's blood. Meanwhile, uh, they're, they're all doing and they're investigating. And uh, per, per Jan, she's, you know, she's looking for her brother. And there's, there's, there's some heartfelt moments here that are, I, I feel sorry. As much as I rejoice with Zan being killed in an egregious manner because I'm a sick bastard, I, I actually felt sorry for Jan when she realizes what became of her brother when Batman and her discover basically, a, you know, him basically been, having been liquefied. And it's 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 sad here. It is, but we ha- we have some great moments between uh, Nightwing and Barbara Gordon, and it's going to be interesting if a lot of this stuff, if it's ultimately revealed that Barbara Gordon or Nightwing are actually a vampire, there, there's a lot of effective misdirection that I'm quite certain Rosenberg or Tinian are probably incorporating into this story, and I I suspect we're going to get a lot more su- surprises as this uh, narrative continues, and I'm really looking forward to it. I quite like this. I, I thought this this particular issue had some emotional moments, some gravitas to it. I, I love how Batman is, uh, you know, he, this is the detective. This is this is Batman utilizing his detective skills, keeping things under wraps, and doing what he has to to find out the information. Unfortunately for him, uh, you know, unbeknownst to him, uh, the Penguin is 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 ultimately ends up being confronted by Zatanna, who's a, a vampire. And Wonder Woman, unfortunately, is uh, ends up being compromised by by Green Lantern, and they ultimately uh, report back to the Justice League that Batman is a vampire. Uh, so they're they're turning on Batman. What better way to take out? I mean, you know that you got to take out the Justice League's the world's best detective, and that's exactly what the vampires are doing. Uh, and it's just it's well done. I. I quite enjoy the dialogue here and even, and you know, Tinian and Rosenberg both understand these characters. I, I thought, I thought they handled Wonder Woman's voice quite well when she confronted, you know, uh, Hal Jordan about, you know, the way that he was responding to Barry being killed. And ultimately uh, he, he manages, he manages to hypnotize Diana, which I thought was interesting. I, I'm a little bit surprised that he was able to do that because the magic lasso usually with a, a connection to the magic lasso gives Wonder Woman a connection to the truth. There's different iterations and interpretation of the magic lasso, but in this particular case, it seems to backfire that the, the lasso, uh, once it's wrapped around uh, Hal Jordan, who is in fact a vampire, it seems to have an an opposite effect. It actually makes Wonder Woman vulnerable to uh, Hal Jordan's vampire hypnosis, which I think is kind of convenient. I think that's a little bit, I would think the the mythological aspects of Wonder Woman's magic lasso could overcome the hocus pocus of vampirism. But <laughs> I guess I'll accept that just for the story because it, it, it makes it interesting because clearly then Wonder Woman and, and uh, Hal Jordan end up trying to set up uh, and frame Batman and, it's you know, this is this is interesting. Uh, I'm quite enjoying this. It's twelve issues long. It's it's a self-contained story. It's fun. This is uh, we know that there's going to be stakes. Uh, 
probably literally stakes shoved into probably people's uh, various heroes and, and villains' hearts. And uh, again, I, I, this is one of my this is one of my favorite titles this week. I quite enjoyed it. What do you think? Yeah, I didn't like it as much as you did. Um, to be to be clear, uh, when after Wonder Woman has been hypnotized, which I I agree with you, didn't have didn't have a a ring of truth to it. Kind of lacks some very mistletude. Um, but when they go in, they, they don't necessarily say Batman's a vampire because, again, remember it's still a secret that these vampires for mo- most people. The Bat family knows, obviously, but for most of the Justice League, they don't know the vampires are are moving against humanity. But what, what they do say is, uh, you know, they discover Wonder Woman says, you know, we discovered that Batman was the one that killed Barry Allen. So, right. Yes, they are still b- blaming Bat- Batman for everything, um, but not you no, know, not necessarily saying he's he's a vampire because again, they they still don't know. Uh, but yeah, I, I I kind of agree with you. The only thing I could think uh, about. Hal Jordan being able to somehow hypnotize Wonder Woman while he's tied up with the lasso is that uh, that episode of Seinfeld where George is trying to teach Jerry how to beat a lie detector. And he <laughs> says, remember, Jerry, it's not a lie if you believe it. And so Hal Jordan is definitely believing what he's saying here about, you know, the, the vampires being overdue to, to be in charge and that sort of thing. And, and when he you know, says to Wonder Woman how, uh, you know, they can live forever and, you know, life's great on the other side. You know, uh, hypnosis doesn't doesn't lie. You know, the, your lasso and my ring are just crutches. The, you know, the real power is, you know, the tools that, that we have at our, our disposal because we're vampires. It's greater uh, power inside of me, blah, blah, blah. So, I, yeah, it, 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 it did. It did sort of surprise me that 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 was uh able to happen but like you said um i I don't know how i'll accept it for the story's sake because i don't know how they proceed if wonder Woman. i mean maybe they can take out wonder woman maybe they can take out superman Uh, can they take out both if they're on the same side Uh, that seems really unlikely i mean i don't know how they're going to take out superman i mean that is a kryptonite something or other i gotta think at this point because you would think superman would be able to do something with solar and and wipe these vampires out pretty quickly so uh but yeah i mean it is it is a lot of fun even though there are a few moments like that that don't have you know uh they just don't feel that realistic in in, within the context of the dc universe but you're right about hal jordan as well being pretty devious we know he has super strong willpower maybe that contributes to him being able to have that vampiric hypnosis that's very traditional traditionally a power of vampires be even even more powerful um but yeah some great moments some great art uh, i really loved seeing black canary kick damien's ass which was fantastic giving him a boot to the face like we've all wished we could do to damien at various times uh so i did yeah i did uh, appreciate that but so you're right i mean this, this is fun it's out of continuity it's a little out of context but um in the end i think batman will come up with a way to save the day because he's batman and well, he, he did to... discover Batman did discover that the blade that uh, that killed uh, Zan was was made not of of metal but of light. So he's I'm yeah. sure he's going to connect he it to Green Lantern. So it, yeah, he I, I think he already knows that it's that it's Hal. And uh, certainly when once the Justice League confronts him and blames him for Flash's death, he's you know he's going to put two and two together and and know immediately. Uh, so yeah, you're right. And th- there are great moments. <laughs> Jane, uh, 
Jaina learning about her brother, you know, just a little tip of a finger is, is all that's left of him. The interaction between uh, Roy Harper and Black Canary and Oliver Queen. Yeah, there, there are bits of humor in as dark as this comic is, so it certainly works on, on that level. Uh, all right, up next we have Aquaman the Becoming number four. Uh, this is from writer Brandon Thomas. We have pencils by Scott Koblish. Inks are by Wayne Von Grobiger. And the colors are by Adriana Lucas. Um, so this is one of those books that I was talking about where uh, I, I sort of feel lost a little bit. Um, you know, we're, we're getting... We're getting a lot of information uh, thrown at us all at once, um, and I'm I'm just not sure. Uh, oh, and I sh I should I realize I didn't say who the letterist was. Uh, Anvil Design does the letters, um, so yeah, I I think, and I I don't blame Brandon Thomas necessarily because we're talking about uh, a character that has decades and decades of history, and it's changed over time based on what matters and what doesn't, and you know DC's changed. Um, their history and their continuity at various times. So it, it, it becomes a little tough sometimes to, to keep track of Zabel and, and what their history is and their relationship to Atlantis. I mean, I, I think they've always started out as a penal colony. That's always been their history, a penal colony of, of Atlantis. But now we're, we're learning more about, about that and about the rulers of Zabel and, and more about Jackson Hyde's, um, ancestry you know what things that his mother has done and we learned last issue that he has a sister uh but now we learn about his stepfather so it, i mean it, it it becomes a little convoluted and a little hard to follow right like trying to squeeze all this stuff in because you want to tell the right story and different uh different creators have have done different things and you know jackson hyde they wanted that aspect of him okay he's black manta's son so you because it makes him some writer at some point thought that makes him more interesting, right? That he's a hero, but he has a villain as a son. He is the new Aquaman, but yet Aquaman's arch foe is his father. But then they wanted him to have a mother that was from Zabel, but then they wanted her to have a daughter, but then it can't be the same. It doesn't make sense to have black man be her father. So now you got to introduce a second, you know, it's like, so Jackson Hyde's mom gets around, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. So again, it, it's it it just really starts getting convoluted to make all this make sense, and then when you add in the politics of it, and it's like who's who's on the right side, who's on the wrong side. It's all a matter of perspective, and it it sort of becomes this situation where, much like I was saying with action comics, where you're expected to buy in, you know, to A and then B and then C to make the story work, it starts to feel like it's a little bit much, right? When I have a really hard time where in stories where there's some sort of situation that only happens because people just don't tell each other what's going on, right? It's like an episode of Three's Company. I can sum up every episode of Three's Company's for you. And for those of you that are young, Three's Company is a sitcom and from the early 80s. <laughs> every episode of Three's Company can be summed up by saying, there was a misunderstanding. And there's always a misunderstanding because one person overhears something takes it out of context and doesn't bother to go back to the people that are talking and ask for clarification. And that that's sort of what's happening here. There's all these different factions. You've got the Atlanteans, you've got the Zabellians, you've got um, 
Jackson Hyde's mom. You've got uh, Jackson Hyde's mom's uh, mentor. And, you know, they're a part of a rebellion and, and they haven't all agreed with what each other has done at various times. And it just becomes this whole game of telephone where people aren't just aren't open and say, okay, this is what I think. This is why I'm going to do what I'm doing. This is the choice that I'm making, whatever. And instead it just becomes this convoluted mess because people are just off doing their own thing and nobody's talking to each other. I just, I have a hard time with stories like that because that's not real life. Right. I mean, yeah. It, it, so it gets a little, it gets a little convoluted. Um, so I mean, hopefully when this is all said and done and I'll sit down and read all, all the issues together, it won't be as confusing as it is. I want to like this. Um, this is the the first issue we've had with Scott Koblish on pencils. Um, Scott Koblish, his line, it's not even necessarily his line weights because typically his line weights are usually medium and it's usually heavy line weights, I feel, that that lead to static art. But for whatever reason, I'm, I'm not a big Scott Koblish fan in terms of what he's able to do for transitions from panel to panel and sense of movement. Uh, his image always, his images always come across as very static to me, which is a big problem, especially when you're having fight scenes underwater. So I'm, I'm not a fan of Scott's art here. Uh, I, there's nothing technically wrong with it, uh, but I just didn't feel that the, the story flowed, especially in the middle when there's a big fight scene underwater where it should feel very fluid. Uh, I, I just don't think Scott's the best choice for, for that. Uh, but the colors are very good, and you know I can't fault the, the art from a, a technical standpoint in terms of you know anatomy or panel layouts or anything. It just for whatever reason, I don't know if it's the line weights or uh, or the character acting. Uh, it just it didn't it wasn't it wasn't the best for me. So, what do you think of this one, Rocky? Uh, I think that there was a lot of action. I I was a little taken aback by how much information was crammed in this issue. I uh, we there was a lot of a lot of exposition, a lot of exposition, a lot of information, a lot of history, a lot of new history. One of the things that we've talked about uh, in the in the weeks leading up to this, with Alcamandaba coming in and with with Black Manta, is that clearly DC is is they're building and expanding the mythology of Aquaman, just like they're trying to expand the mythology of the Amazons with with Wonder Woman, Wonder Girl, and Nubia uh, of the Amazons. And uh, I think that. Uh, I do think that both with Wonder Woman and with the with Aquaman, I think that there's some I think there's some issues. I think there's uh, it's it's a little bit wonky. I think the the mythology in Wonder Woman, I I like Nubian in the Amazons, but I think that the narrative in Wonder Girl and uh, I I think it 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 it's wanting. And in Wonder Woman, I I think that there's a lack of cohesiveness there. And uh, unfortunately, with Black Manta, I, I think the story in Black Manta is not clear at all, and the art is not up to task. Uh, and at least here with Aquaman the Becoming, it's it is more clear. The narrative is more clear. There's a lot here, and we're getting a lot of it crammed into just one issue. We which we could have probably built up in the previous two issues, but I I, I enjoy this. I love the art. I, I really I really wish we had this level of art for Black Manta. I like the history that's being built here. I think Brandon Thomas is, you know, I think he's uh, maybe crammed a little bit too much information in one issue. But I like this. We're getting uh, uh, Jackson Hyde's sister, Dalila. She's the daughter of Elak Enego. Another, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not too big on names that I, I always struggle with. But Elak Enego is, is her father. And 
Jackson Hyde's father is Black Manta, and Black Manta has a connection with the Zebels. And clearly now, we're it looks as if we're building toward what could be a, a war between Zebel and Atlantis, or at least somebody's trying to create, I think, a, a false flag operation to sort of blame Jackson Hyde uh, and tr maybe try to create a war between Zebel and Atlantis. And... And at the same time, Delilah, who is the daughter of Elak, uh, who who apparently was some some very important person in Zabel, uh, apparently that that's part of the machinations and the politics and the diplomacy and the intrigue and the espionage that's going on here. I I'm not entirely clear exactly how all this ties in. I wish it was a little bit more clear myself, but you know, it, it, at least. I will say at least it's it's a it's more clear than in Black Manta, but I I do think that I really do think that there should have been, um, you know, if I'm being, I mean I hate I hate to be I want to I want to cut with a spoon and not a knife when I say this, <laughs> but editorially uh, Aquaman is a little bit of a mess. Aquaman the Becoming in conjunction with Black Manta and the Wonder Woman titles are just the Amazonian titles. It's just messy. It sh it should be it should be more coherent. It should be a little bit more clear. Uh, but it, but at least with this Aqu Aquaman the Becoming, the art's really good, and I think it's it is much easier to understand than Black Manta. But how 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 do do all these connect? That's not clear yet to me. But but we'll have to we'll have to wait and see. I really really hope this clears up because this is supposed to be at some point leading into Aquaman, which is the event Aquaman. And with Black Manta being a little bit of a narrative mess and this Aquaman the Becoming being much more, you know, more clear, but it's unclear how this is all is all connected. I, I think that for readers coming in, especially if you want to attract new readers, this isn't going to do it. I just, I hate to say it. You and I are longtime readers and, and we have the patience and we review this. And, uh, but I just fear that it's going to, it's going to be lost on a lot of people. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, and I agree with you about the the uh, level of art as well. You know, like I said, there's nothing inherently wrong with this art. Just maybe it's not the, the best choice of artists. But yeah, I would take this on Black Manta all day over <laughs> what we've had on there uh, for sure. I, I'd be enjoying that title much more. But yeah, it's 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 like you said, there's so much information crammed in here and a lot of it's new and it's it's sort of going back and changing or adding a lot to to Aquaman's history from back in the day. So it's it's a lot to take in. Uh, up next, we have another Aquaman title. It's Aquaman Green Arrow, Deep Target number three. This is also written by Brandon Thomas. We have Ronan Cliquet on art, Ulysses Ariola on colors, and Josh Reed on letters. I'll talk about the art first. Uh, it's been fantastic throughout. Uh, Ronan Cliquet does a fabulous job of giving us uh, a lot of action, really clean, traditional comic book art. The colors uh, by Ulysses Ariola are, are very primary, which sort of suit this <laughs> kind of pseudo time traveling story and this half man, half dinosaur villain. Um, I'll credit Brandon Thomas for creating this sort of dual narrative through most of the book where we're seeing the story through Aquaman's eyes. And by Aquaman, I'm talking about Oliver Queen <laughs> and Green Arrow, Arthur Curry. Uh, yeah, we, we get different perspectives as they're on different types of the room, both both captured. Um, but it's another one that doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense. We're, we're missing some sort of key information here. 
and, but it seems to be purposeful, at least in this sense, um, based on the fact that Aquaman and Green Arrow don't know 100% of, of what's exactly going on uh, in terms of what these people who've built this time travel platform and, um, and have been using it for. We don't really know what their end goal is. Um, so, you know, we're, we're given some clues here or there, but, but it hasn't been, been made clear other than the fact that they're trying to, to manipulate things. And, and it is hinted at, if not outright said that whatever has befallen Aquaman and Green Arrow in this sort of freaky Friday switch that they've, uh, that they've had to undergo that this, this group, I don't think they've even given themselves a name is sort of to blame for it, but somehow by traveling to Nanda Parabot, uh, Par these guys managed to prevent um, any sort of disaster. Because uh, even the powers that be, these, these, these people that have captured these two heroes, they don't even understand that, that and that's why they've captured them. Like, we want to understand how you guys are able to, to switch lives. It sort of seems like they're, this group is looking for ways to go back in, in time and enrich themselves, but but also maybe go back in time at various key moments and prevent themselves being being captured or caught, maybe prevent heroes from um, even being created at all. Uh, so it's an interesting it's an interesting sort of setup when you think about think about it like that. But at the same time, I, I sort of feel I haven't heard anybody talking about this title. So like this could have been when you think about it in terms of that, like this evil group that has uh, the ability to travel back through time and has this knowledge and they could prevent, you know, Bruce Wayne's parents from being murdered, prevent the Kents from finding the rocket that held baby Kal-El, like stop all these things from happening to where the heroes wouldn't exist. That could be a huge story. That could be a giant DC universe spanning event that crosses over into many, many titles. So it's a, it's a fantastic idea from Brandon Thomas. Um, but you know, keeping it sort of limited to this, the series. And even though it's not necessarily a black label book because you're dealing with time travel or whatever, alternate timelines, I guess you don't necessarily have to say it's out of continuity. So there's a lot to like here. Um, uh, not least of which at, at the end when they finally escape or, or think they've escaped. Uh, and then they realize that they're apparently on the surface of the moon. <laughs> so this group, yeah, clearly has quite a bit of, uh, of power and technology and know-how. So I'm sort of curious to see how it's all gonna gonna wind up, but um, yeah, it can be a little convoluted, uh, and and I I did appreciate the way that Brandon Thomas told the story, like I said, with those two narratives, but I could also see how it can be confusing for uh, for some people. Uh, what are your thoughts on this one, Rocky? Uh, yeah, I'm 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 a little bit confused myself. I uh, although it's not I'm not that confused. I get it. I mean, Nanda Parbat has always been a mysterious place. And so if you, it's perfectly conceivable that if you're going to mix up technology and time travel and you combine it with Nanda Parbat, yeah, you could, I can imagine that, yeah, it might create some, you know, shenanigans where Aquaman lives all over Queen's life and vice versa. And they get mixed up in terms of their, their souls or whatever, the, whatever's going on here. I, I just, I'm just, I don't know that there's a continuity side of me is that I don't really know why this story needs to exist. It's like, it's like Oliver Queen and, and Aquaman. They, they don't have their own comic books. 
And so let's cram them into one. And then just to confuse people who want to see Aquaman, because Aquaman, Arthur Curry doesn't have his own comic anymore. Uh, you know, let's let's cram them together and, and mix them up and confuse them because they both have uh, they both have blonde beards or uh, they both have blonde hair. It just th- this storyline is a little bit baffling to me. This new villain is is an odd choice. I'm not sure. Is this going to be linked to Aquaman? Is this going to be like what? This is a very, very odd choice for a story in the, in, in the middle of. Of, of all the types of, of stories that could be told right now and all the characters that the DC universe has to play with, this is a very, very odd choice of a story. Now, having said that, that's uh, I haven't really reviewed it yet. So, I mean, as, as a story itself, it's interesting. I mean, I, I guess I'm kind of curious to see where this is going to go. I, uh, But I is it going to have any consequence? I agree with you that it's interesting that this sort of quasi-terrorist organization that has access to time travel. It opens up some interesting possibilities about maybe going back in time. No one exactly knows how this terrorist organization was created because they can sort of almost hide themselves in time. And and if they figure out the secret in terms of how Arthur and uh, Oliver mixed up their, their lives, they could really obviously control and create havoc for the heroes and villains, and they could pretty much control the destiny of everyone on the planet. So the conse- potential consequences of this storyline are certainly huge. Um, however, it just seems like, again, it just seems like an odd storyline to me. Like, And like you said, nobody is talking about this storyline. I mean, nobody. And it's got a dinosaur talking, a human hybrid dinosaur is sort of the villain, or is he the villain? I'm not really sure yet. So this is, like I said, this is an odd title. It's not bad. It's three issues in. It's, I'm, I'm entertained. The art's really good. I, and and uh, and now they're they're on the moon, I guess. And so something's going on. But I just, I at the end of the day, I'd much rather opt for an Aquaman, Arthur Curry centered comic book and, and a Green Arrow comic. But uh, maybe I'm maybe I'm old school. I don't know. Sorry about that. Your 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 voice is off. There, uh, your volume's down there. Jeez. Oh, sorry about that. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. Uh, I like both these characters. I like them separately. Uh, although, I don't know. Maybe this comic exists because the powers that be at DC are like, you know, these guys look a lot alike. <laughs> They're yeah. <laughs> you know, what's, the only difference is the goatee. So I don't know. Uh, all right, well, let's move on. Teen Titans Academy is up next from writer uh, Tim Sheridan. We have Mike Norton on art. Tom Dernick does uh, the pencils and inks for pages one through seven. And then Mike Norton handles eight through 22. Alex Sinclair, Jeremiah Skipper on colors, uh, Rob Lee on letters. Um, yeah, Teen Titans Academy. <laughs> what did you think, Rocky? Yeah. Um... Well, uh, Tim Sheridan, uh, I guess we get we get more Red X. I mean, uh, last last issue ended with Red X literally decapitating uh, Simon, who whose goal was to create a new fearsome five by recruiting various members of the Teen Titans Academy. And Red X sort of freaked out and and literally ripped the head off Simon. And there was some. Uh, I think it was I think it was you who said there was some question as to whether or not you know. Was was Red X under some sort of mind control, or was or or did Red X actually kill Simon? And and in fact, it's revealed here that in fact, yes, Red X did in fact kill Simon, and uh, 
And here, in this in this issue, which is called Book of da- the Book of Dane, all the all the background that we've sort of those who've been reading this series so far since Future State, all the stuff that's all of it's finally coming to a head. This warning about uh, you know uh, Shazam and and re- you know being in, in in hell and releasing the unkindness and and ultimately Raven becoming p- possessed and 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 Dane being the uh, I guess uh, one of the, the the sons or the of the devil or some powerful satanic force he's going to come into his own and he's going to harbor in and bring in the harbor in and and be a harbinger of the apocalypse. All this is sort of coming to a head here finally. And it, this issue opens up with, with, with showing the birth of Dane. And and then it shows Dane. And for some reason, when Dane left last, last issue, he, he decides to take Red X with him. And, and like, again, I, I don't think anyone's caring who Red X is anymore. At one point in this issue which was kind of funny. Red X was actually going to take his mask off because he gets to hell. And I think he just wants his face to breathe. Uh, but you know, Dane says, no, no, you know, leave the mask on, you know, that mask is your power. You should never give it up, which is really a ridiculously stupid thing for Dane to say, because the mask isn't his power. And, 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 uh, Red X says something curious. Red X says, I have other powers. And so, okay. So what other powers does Red X have? So maybe does the plot thicken a little bit? Um, Seems a little bit forced there. Is what are the powers of Red X? Uh, is he he appears to be a student, uh, and and the other students of, of Titans Academy even say say to Starfire, and Nightwing, and, and Cyborg. You know, particularly the the character known as Stitch, uh, the I guess the the uh, gender fluid character. Uh, she says, or they say that. that uh, she doesn't think that when they go after Red X that they should go and take Red X out, that they should, you know, that they, that they, she, she kind of, uh, she's like the moral center of Teen Titans Academy. You know, I mean, they obviously, uh, Raven and Changeling and, and Roy Harper, they want to go after Red X because I mean, he, I mean, he decapitated Simon. <laughs> and so they, they kind of want to, you you know, he's a murderer and they want to go after him and potentially use a, a aggressive force potentially lethal force, even though they don't actually say that. And um, Stitch tries to, I don't know, some, it, it seems a little bit like, a little bit tropey as if, as if Stitch is, Stiff is, is going to lecture the older team, the older Titan members on, on tactics and on morality. I just thought it was kind of like, kind of pathetic. I mean, you know, Nightwing and, and Corey and Donna Troy and Raven and Changeling and Cyborg, they don't need a lecture on morality and it seemed very forced. And it, it just seemed out of place to me. And, um, you know, as far as the narrative itself, Shazam warns everyone about what the future might hold, which we know is coming in future state. We Shazam talks about you know Black Adam Jr. and he alludes to he alludes to to where he's at in hell and and, uh, and those who've been reviewing the who've read the Shazam four issue miniseries will know how Black Adam Jr. came back. This is one you know it actually makes sense. We've been following it, but for people that are are just following this by just reading Teen Titans Academy. 
I'm sorry, but you're lost. I mean, you're going to be lost unless you've read Shazam, unless you've read the future state issues, you're going to be lost here. And this issue doesn't really do a heck of a lot to uh, make things particularly clear. Uh, I found, I found that I found Dane, I don't find Dane to be a particularly interesting character. Uh, I don't think, I don't know why we need Dane in this comic, to be honest with you. I, I don't like the character. I, I don't, I don't, I don't like his conversation with Red X. Red X is a killer. I, I don't really, this, this sort of pathetic defense of, of Red X, even by Stitch, I just found it to be ridiculous. Uh, and even when Changeling comes around and says he agrees with Stitch about, you no, know, Red X is a killer. I mean, treat him like the piece of garbage that he is. I mean, and go after him and, and, and use extreme force to do so. You don't have to kill him. No one's expecting the Titans... Uh, to kill Red X, but certainly you're going to go after him. The the exposition here, the dialogue and everything else, it, it feels a little bit, I felt a lot of it just seemed a little bit insulting and forced. It's like the, the students, it's like the students are teaching the teachers here, which is ridiculous. Uh, I mean, we, we, we've, we've been subjected to how many issues of this and we've never actually seen these students in a classroom. <laughs> we've never actually seen them learn anything other than get into a bunch of misadventures and keep secrets from each other. And frankly, the secrets they're keeping from each other are potentially world-destroying secrets, which is another thing that's incredibly insane. And even, even with the teachers keeping the secret of who Red X is, and everything about this just seems absolutely sort of insane to me. Um, I guess I'm sounding pretty hard when I'm talking about it. I guess I'm just, all this is building up in me and I guess I'm venting a little bit here. I just, I want this to be comic book to be more fun than, than I, than, than frustrating. And I find it more frustrating than fun. And, um, you know, I, I you know, uh, and it ends with neuron confronting Dane and, and I'm not really sure. I mean, Neuron confronts Dane, and then when finally the Titans show up and Red X is there, I don't, I don't know why we're supposed to care. I'm not really sure. Uh, I'm, I'm actually hoping the unkindness shows up and kills everyone in this comic at this point. And I, I say that tongue in cheek, but it's, it's just frustrating to me. I just, I kind of, it's about time this thing is over. And unfortunately, this ends on a cliffhanger with Dane being in this ball of hell, surrounded with, with containing demons, and he's in this ball, uh, magical ball. And they're back somehow. They're back in Titans Tower, and it ends on that cliffhanger. And next issue is going to be part one of a new story arc called Expulsion. So this isn't going to end anytime soon, and I want it to. Uh, but I don't know. Are you as frustrated as I am, or or am I too too harsh? Uh no, I'm not. I'm not really frustrated. I mean, any more frustrated than I was going in, <laughs> because we still we still don't know who Red X is. And yeah, it's getting past the time now, you know, when you're doing dumbass things, like you said, with Dane saying, no, no, don't take off your mask. I mean, now, now it's just getting to the point where it's ridiculous. Um, and Stitch even says, you know, she confronts all these veteran Titans saying, you know, who's under the mask and you've been keeping it a secret, you know, and they're like, well, yeah, maybe we do, maybe we don't, you know, they, they won't fess up to it. But, but more so, I, I think, Stitch, I don't know that they necessarily have a problem with with the Titans wanting to bring Red X to justice. She has more of a problem with Dane, with what they're talking about lumping Dane in with, with Red X. 
they don't know who Red X is either. So even though once the other Titans sort of intimate that Red X is a student because they say at that point, they say these students are fugitives, which implies they know who Red X is and they know Red X is a student there at the academy. Dane obviously being the other student and they talk about bringing them both to justice and Stitch is saying, well, well, hold on a second. Red X may be a murderer, but not Dane. And Donna Troy's well, like, not yet, but, you know, we're hearing this prophecy from Raven. We're hearing this prophecy from, from Shazam saying that, you know, it's Dane's the Antichrist and these biblical, you know, uh, events are about to come to pass and, you know, it's going to be hell on earth and the four horsemen and, and blah, blah, blah. And Stitch says, oh, okay, so now we're going to, we're going to take out people for something they haven't even done yet, you know, and, and Nightwing tries to placate Stitch by saying, we're just talking worst case scenario here, right? We got to have a plan to subdue him. Nobody wants to hurt nevermore. And, and I love Stitch saying, no, Dane, say his name. It's Dane. You know, you, when you say nevermore and, and use his uh, code name or whatever, you're dehumanizing them basically. So I do like that even the, the older Titans themselves, some of them like, uh, like Beast Boy says, yeah, I got to say Stitch is right. And, and uh, Starfire agrees as well. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it's, not, it's not something we should be considering yet, taking Dane out. There's got to be other ways. Um, as far as what, who, what and who Dane is, you know, we, this is somewhat of a, an origin story. We, we for sure are told that not only is Dane's father you know, some sort of demon, but he is, you know, the, the demon, he is the devil, he is Satan. And uh, Dane or Nevermore is referred to in here as, as the Antichrist. And um, it's, it's also intimated that he may help to sort of start the apocalypse, you know, Armageddon, end of times, whatever you want to call it, but that he doesn't even necessarily have control over it. So I, I do like him being teamed up with Red X here because it does feel like Red X is, uh, bitten off a little more than than they can chew, and uh, it, you know they've always been sort of this rebellious whoever they are. They've been this re rebellious character who sort of claims to have the the moral high ground, and you know why are all these adults and older people using us for their own ends, and we should have our own freedom to make choices and this and that. But then he hauls off and kills Simon, so that stuff sort of starting to ring a little hollow to me and, and a little hypocritical. It's clear to me that, that Red X has, has issues um, and needs to be taken with a, a firm hand and maybe retaught what right and wrong is because I don't, I don't care what your morality is. Um, you can't just go around killing people. And I, and I, I get it, right? Like he's saying, oh, it was self-defense. There was no other way to, to free my fellow classmates, uh, fellow members of the Teen Titans Academy without killing Simon. Well, the argument could be made that there was, right? And, that, and that's Stitch's whole point. Like, we can't just go around killing people because that's the easiest solution. So uh, I expect we're going to get the second part of Dane's uh, origin in the next issue. That, and that right now, to me, is the most interesting aspect of the story. The identity of Red X being the least interesting. It's been dragged out too long. Like, we knew that it would be and we're afraid that it would be and warned them not to do. Obviously, they don't listen to us, but uh, I don't care anymore. I just want Red X to go away at this point. Not an interesting character. But Dane, I find to be very interesting. Um, and that, that was, to me, was the most interesting aspect of this story. As far as the art goes, uh, and I said it before, I, 
not a huge fan of, of Mike Norton's work uh, on the book. I think the Tom Dernick pages work a little bit better. Not to say that the the uh, Mike Norton pages are, are awful. I think they're better than than he did in, on the previous issue. Um, but I don't know. I, I think Mike Norton's not the, the best superhero artist. His stuff's more slice of life or his Battle Pug series, you know, his art on there is, is fantastic. But drawing all these, and it's a lot, right, to have to draw all these characters. So not a surprise we've had so many artists on this title already. Um, so, yeah, that's Book of Dane, a one a one shot, basically, giving Dane's origin, but um, more to come because clearly there's a, a lot going on with this supposed invasion. Uh, okay, up next we have Task Force Z number three. This is from writer Matthew Rosenberg. Eddie Barrows does the pencils, Ebar Ferrer on inks, Adriana Lucas on colors, Rob Lee on letters. I've said it before, this this art team of Barrows, Ferrer, and Lucas is a, is a dream team. You know, we had them on the Freedom Fighters uh, maxi-series written by Robert Venditti a few years ago. Their art's as dynamic as ever, and we get a lot of action in this issue. Deadshot comes back. Uh, Red Hood apparently was mortally wounded. He's brought back. We have a fantastic fight between Red Hood and Cheshire, which is really great. We get some action with Bane, uh, which is also nice. And we get the reveal, finally, of who Crispin is. So there's a lot to like in this issue. Love the interaction between Deadshot and Jason Todd. Matthew, Matthew Rosenberg does have somewhat of a dark sense of humor. So when Deadshot does show up and, uh, you know, Jason Todd's trying to recover from being raised from the dead uh, and, and the injuries he sustained in the last battle. He's like, what, what are you doing in here? You just come to eat me and finish the job? And Deadshot's like, wait, wait what? I'm e I've been eating people? He's, he's still disoriented from being brought back to life. And again, great job by the art team to show this sort of zombified looking uh, Deadshot. Um, I, and I don't necessarily think that bringing him back in this way lessens the impact of his death in the Suicide Squad by by Tom Taylor, but I, you know, and you knew they weren't going to leave him dead. He's too important of a character. Um, but he has some great reactions too. Like once Jason Todd explains what's going on and how he's on task force X, he's like, wait, I'm on another suicide squad. Like even, even dying didn't get me out of the, <laughs> out of this, you know, cause he's sort of the longest tenured member. I mean, he was a member from the beginning of the 1987 version of the suicide squad that John Ostrander wrote coming out of legends event. Uh, and he's, yeah. I think he's the only one that's pretty much been on the team, like through all its iterations, captain boomerang has been there most of the time. Maybe not always Harley Quinn, more of a new member, but Deadshot, Yeah. He's been there. Uh, I think from the beginning plastique was there, I think for the whole time from the 87 one, but when it relaunched with the new 52, she, she wasn't there, but Deadshot. Uh, it's just, he's just a great character. And so he's been there all this, this time. So I'm not surprised to see them, bring him back. And he does sort of have his own um, sense of, uh, of morality. So I enjoyed that. Um, I didn't necessarily enjoy seeing Jason Todd manipulated by various members of this task force Z, very various administrative members, uh, but also not real surprised by it. Jason's not exactly the, the sharpest knife in the drawer, uh, if you will. So, uh, but he does get his revenge on Bane, which I thought was fantastic. That was a great scene, uh, especially once he he allows Bane to, to come back 
with a little more resin than he normally would get. Uh, and, and it's twofold, right? It, it helps Jason in his fight against Cheshire, but then it also helps because it makes Bane more aware. And then he, right before he kills Bane, he says, you know, I'm doing this, right? He says, yes, say it, Alfred Pennyworth. Yeah, so it's, it's definitely some, some revenge. Um, although he says Bane is gone, but is he just trying to keep Bane from being resurrected? And, and what does this say about... Didn't he just vow to Batman that he wasn't going to kill anymore? That's why he's using a crowbar now instead of the guns, which I also think is super dark since he was killed by a crowbar. Um, and then we have the final reveal that Crispin is is Two-Face, which I suppose in some ways makes some sense. I mean, we've got we've got uh, Two-Face as, uh, as the mayor in other, <laughs> of Gotham and other stories right now. So... Um, sort of a more cerebral Two-Face going on these days in the in the Batman corner of the DC universe. Although I, I don't know that, despite the fact this has Jason Todd, it, it just doesn't feel like it ties in that much with Batman, or hasn't felt like it ties in that much with the Batman corner. But maybe it'll feel like that more um, now that Two-Face is revealed as the, uh, as the mastermind behind it. But... Uh, one other thing that I'll mention on the credits page, which I've already given the credits, but for whatever reason, I'm sure Matthew Rosenberg's idea, it says Task Force Z created by, and instead of having Matthew Rosenberg's name there, it says people who have to explain to relatives what Lazarus resin is. So I thought that was pretty <laughs> funny. So anyway, uh, I know you didn't, if I remember right, you didn't really like issue two of Task Force Z, Rocky, this third issue land better for you? Yeah, well, I actually didn't like the first issue. I, did, I didn't like the concept. I, I did. I thought this gotcha. was just sort of a ripoff of Suicide Squad, and it was issue two that started to get better for me because I actually, I liked how it brought the emotions of things and how it. This is like I, I for some reason I feel more of the horror element of this. It's like the horror element of the Suicide Squad and just how how Bane was was basically they were keeping him just barely alive so he could, but not not alive enough that he could even scream. And he finally gets alive enough here, thanks to Jason Todd, who makes a deal. Basically, he wants to make sure he makes a deal with Amelia and Delia. Uh, uh, and of course, I guess Crispin, who he later finds out is Two-Face, he makes a deal with him saying, look, I want my team to have enough Lazarus that they're actually alive so that I'm not working with literal zombies. It's ridiculous. And of course, that's what he ultimately he he does have. You mentioned just so many fantastic scenes here. I mean, Eddie Burrows on the art was fantastic. But... Just little moments, like even the, it's discovered here that it's not just Amelia, but Amelia has a twin, Delia. And it's kind of interesting that Two-Face, who's Crispin, uh, his his lieutenants are Amelia and Delia. So there's two of them and they're twins and, and he's Two-Face. So I wonder if Amelia and Delia are a sort of a dark and light side as well. Maybe that's a little bit too close to the chest, but <laughs> close to the vest, so to speak. Sorry. But I just find that kind of funny. Like, you, you know, of course, Two-Face would have lieutenants that are, that are twins. I just think that's funny for some reason. Um, I love the fact that Jason Todd, you uh, finds out who you know, right away figures out it's Two-Face. I actually, I think it's an inspired choice to have Two-Face. I think it's a natural fit for Two-Face to lead this type of suicide squad. I mean, uh, you know, at least, you know, Amanda Waller, we could say Amanda Waller is two-faced anyway, really. <laughs> and this, and again, close to the chest, but I mean, I mean, at least with, with two-faced Harvey Dent, I mean, he's, 
uh, at least with Harvey, you kind of you you know your 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 choices are limited. It's either going to be you know it's either going to be a good or a dark, <laughs> a good or a bad day, and I I really like it. I like the fact that Jason Todd is in fact dead. Now we know that Jason Todd he died, and he's now addicted to the Lazarus resin as well, Lazarus pills. So he's gonna until so they got him. They 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 got control of him now as well. They got control of Deadshot. They got control. I I I cannot believe that Bane. You know. Jason Todd wanted to kill Bane, I think, just as, you know, for what he did to Alfred. But I, I suspect that while Bane is taken off the playing field here, uh, I, I can't believe that. I have a feeling that Bane's going to be back. I, I imagine they're going to retrieve Bane uh, because it's not like he's, it's not like Bane would be difficult to locate. He was thrown off a building. I mean, it's not as if he, he would be an easy villain to, to, to find if he's, uh, if he's splattered all over a sidewalk. But in any event, I love Cheshire. I I, I kind of wish uh, they they make quick Cheshire here is handily taken out by Bane. I kind of uh, I, I like the use of Cheshire. Uh, this is this is Leon Harper's mother, and I kind of want to see her. I want to see Cheshire uh, more with Roy Harper and Leon Harper. I want to see that story take place and that reuniting of the mother and daughter. We saw that in the pages of Catwoman, but I I, I don't know if I like seeing Cheshire in this here. Uh, because I'm not sure how this, I mean, she was a member, she was almost like Catwoman's stray cats in, in the pages of Catwoman and for her to run her own operations here, Cheshire seems like a character that seems a little bit like she's trying to find her way. She seems, maybe this is just character building for Cheshire. It's, it's interesting. Uh, I even find her mask interesting, uh, the way that, uh, they've, they've given her the mask. She's Cheshire and her daughter's Cheshire cat. So all these moving parts is actually fairly it's impressive. I like I like what Rosenberg's done here. This is just uh, this is it, this is really good, and the art's fantastic. This is more. I feel that where this is going, I, I'm feeling the character moments more than I do in Suicide Squad by uh, uh, by Robbie Thompson, and uh, but between Robbie Thompson and what between what Robbie Thompson's doing on Suicide Squad and here with Rosenberg on Task Force Z, I mean. It's a great time to be a Suicide Squad kind of fan. That's all I got to say. Good stuff. Yeah, and I think Red Hood is an inspired choice to lead this team. He, you know, maybe he would have had a harder time getting him to, because Red Hood's never going to put up with Amanda Waller's bullshit. Um, so having his own sort of Suicide Squad like team is fantastic. And we get lines like, "Hey, Bane, stop pounding on her." Crispin doesn't want to interrogate a puddle. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's just that's just inspired. So. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Detective Comics number 1046, out and gone from writer Mariko Tamaki. Dan Moore is the artist. Jordi Belair on colors. Aditya Bidikar handles the letters. Uh, I just got to quickly shout out before uh, I talk about, or Rocky talks about the interior. It's this a fear state aftermath and very much is sort of a tie up loose end sort of issue, which I feel like we've gotten three of those now. <laughs> is it that hard to tie up fear state? Uh, but I got to shout out the the uh, alternate or variant cover by Lee Bermejo, which is maybe at, as we close out 2021 here, may be my favorite cover of the year. I mean, it's absolutely just gorgeous work by Bermejo. I mean, look at that. That is just stunning. So uh, anyway, were you, uh, were you a fan of this issue, Rocky? Or are, you, are you ready for us to put Fear State completely in the rear view like I am? 
Well, uh, yeah. Well, th- this is uh, while this it did sort of continue to wrap up Fair State. This definitely felt like a prelude to Shadow of the Bat. There were a couple of seeds here that were planted that I think it's probably a safe bet to say some of these characters that we're going, we've been, we were introduced to in this issue are going to play a role in Shadows of the Bat. And Marika Tamaki, I think, does a good job in this prelude, sort of setting up some of the characters that will play a role. In particular, this new character called Anna. Anna Volshin, <laughs> Anna Volshin, who is basically a, a glorified thief who ends up being stopped by, uh, I guess, spoiler or Stephanie Brown, Batgirl, and 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 through the through the combination of uh, Batgirl, Stephanie Brown, and Batman, Bruce Wayne, Batman, they they stop this Anna Volshin, and she's ultimately she is a murderer. They take her down, and she's ultimately going to be someone that will likely end up at Arkham Tower. Uh, we're also introduced to Mayor Nagano's, I believe it's his wife, uh, whose name is Koyuki. And I think Koyuki suffers from some kind of mental illness, maybe suffers from some kind of depression. And I'm assuming it's Mayor Nagano's wife or daughter, maybe. I'm, 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 it wasn't clear. I'm assuming it's his, it's his wife. But so we, we got characters that are going to likely play a role in Shadows of the Bat, which which again, just from inference of where this is going and future solicits, it's going to be the idea of, you know, Dr. Meridian is recruited by Marinagano to, they're going to put Arkham Tower on a one month trial, sort of like a probation to see how this, because they haven't had a lot of luck with Arkham Asylum. So they're going to, with this new Arkham Tower, they're going to give it a month and Marinagano has basically hired Dr. Chase Meridian to sort of uh, evaluate and do an assessment in terms of how the the all the uh, psychologists are going to perform their tasks for Arkham Tower over the course of the next thirty days, and so uh, presumably, since over the ne- in real time, uh, crossing the meta boundary, I mean, over the next thirty days, we're going to be getting we're going to be getting for the next how many weeks uh, more chapters, you know chapters of shadows of the bat and where this is going to go i'm not sure but it's it's fair to say that this is going to have to do with probably the successes and failures in terms of the rehabilitation attempts of various batman villains and this anna Volshin character seems to be a character who's quite she's murderous and she's quite screwed up in her own her own way um so o- overall i i didn't i didn't mind this the huntress herself is introduced Mar- Mar- marika tamaki uh, Huntress now appears to have a superpower. She has violent visions that were triggered by that parasitic infection of Hugh Vile. So she can kind of see horrific and violent acts before they actually occur. She can almost see through psychopaths' eyes. So Huntress still has seems to have that ability. Uh, artistically here, uh, Dan Mora, there's a couple sequences here that I, I thought sort of threw me a little bit. There is one, in, there's, it's a beautiful sequence where Stephanie Brown, his Batgirl, takes out, uh, takes out uh, Anna Volshin, who is driving this vehicle. But it looks like she explodes the vehicle, like she throws a bomb inside the vehicle. And then, then the vehicle suddenly doesn't appear to be damaged at all. And then she wraps, she suits a batter, she shoots a sort of like a batter, sort of like a a bat rope to lock the tires and flips the car. So the car both explodes and flips and, and a Volshin isn't dead. I, I thought it was a, I thought the 
I thought the sequences were a little bit confusing. It was visually spectacular. The the color, Jordi Belair on the coloring is fantastic. I mean, visually, this is a, again, this is a beautiful comic. And uh, you gave a shout out to the, uh, the cover, uh, the, that, that cover B. I, I love the cover A just with the, with Bruce Wayne, with the bat, with the, with the Batman tattoo, with the bat, uh, symbol as it almost like burned on on his on his back as he's looking at the TV. I think it's visually, I think it's just a visually eye catching sort of uh, sort of visual. So the covers here are great this week, and this is a good prelude, uh, I think, leading into Shadows of the Bat. So what do you think? Yeah, sort of not much happens here, you know, unless this all this is prelude, like like you said, it's Anna Vulgen character. Again, it's like she's presented in such a way like that we should feel like we already know who she is, but we we don't. Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess we'll find out in future issues. Um, I agree with you about Mayor Nakano's wife. Uh, apparently, Stephanie Brown is going to be a part of it, along with Huntress. Uh, the Shadows of the Bat. We know Batman's going to be out of town. Uh, so how this ties in with what's going on in Batgirls, because it doesn't feel at all like a, a Batgirls title, um, from what we, for that matter, what we've had of a Batgirl, Barbara Gordon showing up in, in Nightwing, doesn't feel like that really ties in either. But yeah, so, sort of strange. So I don't know, it's very much, this is very much a transitional issue, getting sort of um, some people in, in place. Uh, but I definitely feel like this issue should have come out before the latest issue of Batman when Batman has already left Gotham, right? Like you, if you read that yeah. issue and then you read this one, you're like, wait, he's back in Gotham? Nah, not necessarily. I agree with you about the uh, that sequence from Dan Mora. Uh, you know, normally Dan Mora is very, very good artist. He, he doesn't do the best job of making it clear what's happening. I had to go back and look at the sequence multiple times. So... If you look at it, Stephanie Brown is pulling out her uh, her battering. If you go go up one page, Rocky, you'll see she's got her banger, battering in hand there, and you see behind her is a Ford Mustang. And then she throws that battering, and it goes through the back of Anna Volshin's car. And then Anna Volshin on the next page, mm. she says, boom, and then the, that's the car behind Stephanie Brown that actually explodes. Yeah. <laughs> and then Stephanie Brown, despite being thrown by this explosion, still manages to fire off her grappling gun, lock up the tires and the, the getaway car, the Ferrari uh, that Anna Volshin is driving, flips over the old woman and doesn't run her down. And just, I mean, really far fetched, a cool visual, I guess. You know, we've seen it in movies hundreds of times at this point where a car flips over and doesn't hurt somebody. But Stephanie Brown, she doesn't even have superpowers, man. I mean, come on. She's going to be able to fire the grappling hook off and, and lock up the tires to the point where the car flips over this old woman. Uh, so, yeah, got to disagree with that uh, that visual sequence there. It didn't, didn't work for me. Uh, and then as far as Arkham Tower rising in Shadows of the Bat, man, uh, I really can't think of something I care about less than Arkham Tower. It should have been Pennyworth Tower in my mind. Maybe it will get there in the end, but it should be there from the beginning in my mind. Maybe I'm just fixated on that, uh, that pitch from, uh, from James Tynan on, on what he, you know, he might've done had he stayed on the title. Uh, but that's sort of, um, 
that feeling of, of man, am I sick of the term Arkham or the name Arkham being tied in with Gotham City? That continues in the backup story, which is written by Stephanie Phillips. Art is by David, David Lapham. We have Trish Mulvihill on colors, Rob Lee on letters. Finishes off the story of, of Harley Quinn and this old guy who used to be uh, an inmate at Arkham or a patient at Arkham. And he was talking about how basically when all the lunatics came in, it turned Arkham from a hospital into the, this loony bin and it, it poisoned the town. And he's trying to, to destroy the new Arkham Tower before it's even built. And Batman has to team up with Harley Quinn in order to stop it. Um, and Batman's talking about this is the second chance for Arkham, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not buying it. I, I don't know why. I mean, with everything that's happened in Gotham city, like we've talked about hundreds of times recently, it seems like nobody in their right mind would live in Gotham city. Nobody would. There's just too much garbage that goes on too much insanity. Yeah. And now you're telling me that you, you finally a day happens. Arkham burns to the ground. You're going to build a new mental health facility. You're going to call it the same thing. Like nobody would do that. It is so unrealistic. Like in, in this day and age where things get rebranded all the time because of optics, you're telling me that a, a loony bin and a sane asylum that's been around for decades, if not a century, that has housed, you know, the worst criminals in, in Gotham City. And now there was this horrific event on A Day where many, many people died. You're gonna build a new tower and you're gonna call it art. There's not there's nobody alive. There's no Arkham doctor alive. There's no Arkham family alive that's having anything to do with this thing being built. There's no reason for it to be called Arkham other than to link it to the past Arkham Asylum, which only has negative connotations to it. It's it's asinine. It's completely stupid. I disagree with it completely. And I, I doubt very seriously whether anything that happens in Shadows of the Bat, which is going to focus on this Arkham Tower, I doubt anything Mariko Tamaki does in that story is going to make it make any logical or realistic sense whatsoever. And I hope I'm wrong, but I don't possibly see how I can be. It is completely stupid. Call it Pennyworth, call it Gotham Tower, call it mental health facility, whatever. You don't call it God. You don't call it Arkham. You just don't. It's dumb. So uh, sorry for yeah. the rant, but I, I just, I find it asinine. Well, I, 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 I agree with you. Uh, is, is your rant over? I don't want to interrupt it. <laughs> yeah, no, I just, I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's, it's insulting to the intelligence of any DC comic reader. It's that bad. Yeah. I, I, I don't, I, I think in terms of, I think it lacks verisimilitude, uh, but at the same time, and I think I mentioned this last time, Arkham, Asylum is just associated with Batman and for corporate reasons, for reasons of copyright alone, you, you pretty much know they don't want to eliminate that name, even though it would make far but more the sense. Ruins, the ruins of Arkham can still be there and you can still tell stories and have those have things happen with Arkham well, Asylum. Fair enough. Fair enough. You could still technically have Arkham Asylum be like uh, associated with you know, Penny of the Pennyworth Foundation, they could still work in conjunction with Arkham and, you know, they could, you know, they, you're right. They could af absolutely call it the Pennyworth Foundation or for rehabilitation or whatever for the criminally insane. And yeah, they could do both. And the fact that maybe they, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're calling this a second chance and, uh, you know, yeah, I don't, it, it seems, it seems so absurd only because you're right. Batman's rogues gallery is just 
they're all insane killers and uh and you know and you know it's funny the very last panel in this backup is with batman saying this is a second chance well how many chances i mean this is not a second chance this is like the millionth chance exactly like, like you said this is this is the millionth chance i mean third fourth fifth i mean how many chances uh is one going to get and then it's one thing to like you said it's one thing to reinstate and to call it Arkham, but to literally have now Arkham Howard literally in the middle of Gotham, at least before it was Arkham. I always understood Gotham. I always understood Arkham Asylum to be on the outskirts of Gotham. So yep. at least when they escaped, you had a, you know, the people of the citizens of Gotham had maybe a five minute head start to get out of the city. <laughs> now that's not the case. Cause now when they escape, they're literally in the middle and the heart of Gotham. So it is kind of comical. The plus side here is uh, David uh, Lapham's art is is really good. Uh, so I thought I think in terms of the script and the dialogue, Stephanie Phillips, uh, writer Stephanie Phillips, did a did a good job here. You know, I, I think I think this was editorially driven. Maybe I'm wrong, but I'm I'm assuming this this was sort of a command from high from high up saying, you know, we we want Arkham Tower now. Let's modernize it a little bit, and that's what they're doing. We'll see what Marika Tamaki is going to do moving forward in terms of making uh, maybe maybe giving us a different perspective about Arkham Tower to maybe you know moving forward into the into the new year. We'll, we'll see. Yeah. Again, I hope I hope I'm wrong. I hope Marika Tamaki somehow makes it make sense, but <laughs> I, I I really don't see how she can. I, I don't. It's just yeah, it makes no sense. Uh, anyway, let's move on. Superman 78, number five, from writer Robert Venditti. Wilfredo Torres is the artist. Jordi Blair on colors. David Lamphere of A Larger World handles the letters. Uh, we've really been enjoying this, Rocky. Did this uh, did this issue hit for you as well? Uh, yeah, it's it, it hit. Uh, I do notice that uh, um, it, it's, it's... I'm almost surprised at how many people... Uh, just as my own my own uh, observation is that a lot of my fellow YouTube reviewers or our fellow YouTube reviewers really love this. There, there's a, there seems to be almost a unanimous kind of love for this title for Superman seventy eight, and it's getting a lot of love from many different circles. Everyone really really seems to love it, and and you know as a compliment uh, to a writer, it's uh, Robert Vendetti. Uh, it, it, it as we've said before, it captures the essence of Christopher Reeve so well, and all it's not just Christopher Reeve, but all the characters. And this really, you can imagine, uh, at least for me, uh, even the way that this, uh, the way that artist Wilfredo Torres, the way the way that he renders it here, I even get a sense of, I can imagine the movie with very bad special effects. And I say that with love, not as a criticism, because <laughs> uh, this is a good story. This is a good story. It captures, I think it captures all the characters so well. It's just, it's a lot of fun. And, you know, the, the continuity, I think, is a little wonky. I just don't quite understand how Jorel and Laura survived and ended up with with Candor. But... Uh, that's a nitpick. I'm just glad to see what it looks like to be a Marlon, the Marlon Brando character with his son, with Laura. They get to see their son again and they, you know, they get to, you know, the last issue, I, we both got a chuckle on how uh, Jor-El gave Lex Luthor a compliment, you know, saying, you know, he's quite genius. He created like alpha wave, um, an alpha wave uh, something or another to allow 
Jarrell to sort of connect to the outside world and and influence and to hack into Brainiac's uh, shrinking technology, which ultimately what he he does in this particular issue, and which allows Superman to escape and to enlarge and confront Brainiac in this issue. The dialogue here is 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 just really bang on. You really get a sense. Uh, I mean. Uh, Artistically, you know that this is Christopher Reeve. It feels familiar. People, if you've been loving this series so far, there's you're going to continue to love this series uh, in a way that that I don't think that the the Batman '89 series is getting as much love and attention as this one is, as uh, simply because this one deals more with the characters that we all know uh, and love, and maybe got more more box office uh, love and, and attention and feeling a feeling of nostalgia here. Um, yeah, I, story-wise, it's good. I, the art's fantastic. I mean, it's, it really, the, the, I mean, artistically, this really drives it home. You can, uh, I, I don't even want to ruin it here. I mean, he confronts Brainiac. Brainiac reaches, I mean, he made it, he made it, Superman makes a deal with Brainiac, but Brainiac is the one that actually ends up breaking his word. And so, uh, it's with Superman confronting Brainiac at the end. Uh, there's a great scene with Superman flying with his fists in front of him. I mean, just like as you associate with the Superman character, again, movie nostalgia right up there. Uh, just just a really enjoyable read. And uh, yeah, I, I don't really don't got much to add. There's, there's nothing wrong with this comic. I, I think narratively, this is going to put a smile on people's faces. This is going to read excellent as a trade. There's one issue left. This ends on a cliffhanger. We're going to obviously get the big final battle between Brainiac and Superman next issue. Uh, I think this is a, you know, it's well worth it. It's well worth it. What do you think? Yeah, I don't have a lot to add to, to what you're saying. I mean, you know, like we've said throughout it captures the tone and feel of the Richard Donner movies. Excellent. Um, and, and, you know, the only negative I'll say about it is that I'm just super disappointed that we never got Richard Donner, Superman three with <laughs> this type of story going up against Brainiac. I mean, uh, would have been maybe the best Superman movie yet. So yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. One of the things that I, I kind of chuckled at. So we have action comics this week. Uh, and it's the older Superman and he's got the gray hair around his sort of his temples wrapping around the back. And then in this one, we've got Superman who puts this sort of device that Jor-El gives him around his head. And it, there were a few pages where I'm scrolling through the digital copy and I'm like, wait, why does he have gray hair? Oh no, that's the, yeah. <laughs> that's, the that's, that's not really, gray yeah. hair. Yeah. That's yeah. Uh, the device that Jor-El gave him. The other thing that I want to shout out is the colors by Jordi Belair. So if you've seen the original, either first or second uh, Superman movie, uh, you'll remember that in the scenes in, on Krypton, or Krypton, as Marlon Brando always used to pronounce it, uh, they were wearing the white, they, they would wear the white robes, right? And the white robes in the way that they filmed it would like glow, especially in the early scenes in, in Superman 1, where uh, Jor-El was sort of playing the role of prosecutor and getting the Phantom Zone villains condemned to uh, to the Phantom Zone. And everything else is dark and in shadow. And, and the white robes that Jor-El was wearing just had this glow to them. If you look at the pages that Jordi Biller colors with, uh, with Jor-El and Lara, you'll see uh, if you, yeah, you'll see how much those robes look like they're glowing. Uh, especially if you go down one more page, Rocky. Yeah, right there in the scene where uh, 
you can really see it where Jorel and Laura are kind of holding each other. Yeah. You'll notice that she's created a little bit of a glow around them. Um, and so it really makes those colors pop and it, it's just a little continuity thing, a little detail that, you know, she was paying attention to the source material and bringing that aspect in, uh, to the comic, which again, sort of sets it in that world that Richard Donner created. And I really appreciated that she paid attention to that because it's, it's noticeable when you read the comic. So yeah, fantastic, fantastic job by Robert Venditti, who is a huge fan of those Superman movies. So, uh, great job, Rob. Uh, okay, up next we have Human Target number three. This is written by Tom King, art by Greg Smallwood, letters by Clayton Cowles. And when I say art, the colors are by uh, Greg Smallwood as well. I hope you guys all got a chance to listen to my interview with Tom King uh, on the Christmas Day episode of, uh, of the 12 Days of the Comic Source. We discussed this, he, uh, Tom and I, he talked about the art and how Greg is just blowing it out of the water and created a whole new style for this for this book. Um, the first two issues definitely had a lot of charm to them. Uh, that's the, the word that comes to mind most when I think about the first two issues of uh, Human Target. Some of that charm is still here, but not to the same extent uh, in issue three. Instead, issue three adds a little bit more a sense of urgency to the mystery that's going on with who poisoned Christopher Chance while trying to poison Lex Luthor. There's also a lot of humor in this issue with uh, Christopher Chance, the human target, and Ice going to talk to, to Booster, who Tom King uh, very much plays Booster Gold to comedic effect very, very well here. Uh, but the majority of the issue sort of focuses on this back and forth, this antagonism between Christopher Chance and Guy Gardner. And normally you think, okay, Christopher Chance, he's human target, he doesn't necessarily have any powers. You've got Guy Gardner who has a Green Lantern ring, arguably the most powerful uh, weapon in, in all of the DC universe. Um, what chance does, no, no pun intended, what chance does the human target have <laughs> against uh, Guy Gardner? But Guy Gardner is not you know, the sharpest tool in the shed. So I love sort of the resolution of that and how Christopher Chance, it shows his, his ability to sort of live in that world of, of these superhumans and hold his own by the, what he does and how he tricks uh, Guy Gardner in the end. Uh, so, I mean, this continues to be a, an absolutely fantastic book. Um, and much like Tom told me when, when we chatted, uh, you don't even need to read the, the words. You know, you, you pick up this book and just look at the art. This book is worth the price of admission just for the art alone. Um, so yeah, I, this, and don't get me wrong, I loved Rorschach. Strange Adventures I liked to a lesser extent, although I feel like Tom accomplished exactly what he set out to do with Strange Adventures. Um, but this is the first one of these type of books, right? One of the, one of these 12 issue maxi series that Tom has done where I'm like, I don't just want the next issue. I want every single issue. I want the rest. I want all nine issues. I want the rest of it. I want it right now. I can't wait to read it. I haven't felt like that on a Tom King book since Mr. Miracle, since the first issue of Mr. Miracle. Like this is fantastic. And I want the whole story and I want it right now. I know, I know that's not going to happen. You know, I got to wait nine more months, but that's how good this is. As soon as I finish reading it, I want the next one and the next one after that. And the next one after that, like I want to be able to see all the gorgeous Greg Smallwood art. And I want to know 
what happens with ice and with Christopher chance and the mystery of who tried to kill uh, Lex Luthor. Like I, I, I want this whole story. Uh, so I, I think this is doing pretty well at the same time, human target, not that Mr. Miracle before Tom and Mitch got a hold of it was a household name. I feel like that series definitely raised a profile of Mr. Miracle, but certainly human target is less known than Mr. Miracle. Despite the fact that human targets had two TV shows, Mr. Miracles had zero. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of DC characters that haven't had any TV shows and yet human target of all the properties, right? Go figure. Um, but anyway, it wouldn't surprise me if we get a third or a human target movie, uh, because that, like, I think that's how good this is. Um, I think the success of Mr. Miracles is sort of what sparked the new gods idea of a new gods film. And I know it got shelved, um, a lot tougher to do a new gods movie, a lot more expensive, obviously Christopher chance, much more of a street level character. Uh, and this is a fantastic premise you know, a guy solving his own murder. And, and Tom even said that uh, a lot of the inspiration for this came from a, uh, a movie from back in the 30s or 40s called DOA, where a guy's poisoned in a bar and has to solve his own murder. So uh, clearly it's worked before for film. Uh, I'm sure it could work again. So yeah, this is, this is fantastic. Uh, what do you think, Rocky? I love this. You know, I, I've been watching some James Bond movies lately. I watched uh, just I, I watched Thunderball uh, a couple nights ago, and then I'd watched Doctor Doctor Noah before that. This actually reminds me of that it has that same. It feels even though it's even though I know it's taking place in modern times, it it feels like it has sort of that old nostalgic sort of '60s feel to it because of Greg Smallwood's Smallwood's art. I absolutely love this. I agree with you. I think that. Uh, uh, I mean, kudos to Tom King. I listened to your interview with that DOA movie. I, I love the premise. I think it's great. I love how, I mean, eh. you know, the funny thing is, is I thought that one of the criticisms I had of Tom King's Batman run is that there was a, there was a, a, a number of issues where Booster Gold appeared in his Batman run. And I wasn't the only one that felt that he completely misunderstood Booster Gold. And he he mis he miswrote Booster Gold in his Batman run for a whole slew of reasons, which I won't get into because I'm complimenting Tom King now. He nailed Booster Gold here much better than he did in his Batman run. He uh, he 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 got Booster Gold's humor and and just uh, it just it it felt more right and it, the dialogue here just feels right. The interaction, the sexual innuendo, and the sexual tension between Christopher <laughs> Christopher. Um, chance and and ice here it's just incredible i mean it's actually building up i mean i actually i want these two to get i want these two to do the nasty i mean i i mean i feel it i feel like i feel like i did uh watching moonlighting back in the day with bruce willis and uh uh what's the actress's name sybil shepherd sybil shepherd yeah it's like will they or won't they you know i mean uh will they or won't they and uh I mean, just the, the tension back and forth. This is really good. And and Guy Gardner, too. I'm actually kind of curious to what diehard Green Lantern fans think about the characterization of Guy Gardner here. Is Guy Gardner the type of guy that would surrender his ring to Hal Jordan? Like, I mean, the way Christopher Chance psycho plays the game of psychology and, and really thinks that, you know, he psychologically breaks down Guy Gardner thinking that Guy Gardner would, would voluntarily give up his ring because he's afraid of Hal Jordan. I'm I'm wondering how many people, Green Lantern fans, actually agree with that. Uh, I don't, I think it's possible. I've, I've never really thought of Guy Gardner as being afraid of Hal Jordan. 
to be honest. So I, I think that that's something I think Tom King's making, taking some liberties there. Uh, but at the same time, I guess I can believe it. I mean, it's not a big deal, but it's, it's I got I know a couple of uh, people in the Weird Science DC chat that are, I'm going to be curious to pick their brain to see if they agree with that sort of characterization or if this is just going to be more ammunition for saying, oh, look what Tom King has done to this character, you know? Uh, I love it, though. I like it. I, I like how he sort of pokes fun. Guy Gardner, I think, he's... Uh, he he gets some some good scenes in here, Guy Gardner, and he's he's not made a f- complete fool out of. He he you know he definitely takes. Uh, he's very aggressive here, Guy Gardner. He he is kind of like the jerk boyfriend, which I imagine, which he always was during the Justice League International days. This felt like Guy Gardner to me, uh, and that's a compliment to Tom King because I can't always say that about Tom King when Tom King writes characters because sometimes I just don't agree with the with the characterizations and the personalities that he gives characters that I feel I know but I feel like I think this this I found this believable <laughs> that this is the, the I like what Christopher Chance did there I like how he manipulated Guy Gardner I like how he's interacting with Ice I I love how he's you know he's you know he's dying but at the same time he is um he's well on his way to you know he, he this is going somewhere and even though the story, story-wise, not a heck of a lot happens here. I don't care because these character moments uh, are so incredible. This, the art's fantastic. This is like watching just a fantastic movie, and the coloring is gorgeous. And even, uh, even the, even the cover with uh, as crazy as it is with Booster Gold on the cover with the pink background, like he's like he's eating a hot dog with Christopher Chance. I mean, it's, it's crazy, but. This works. This works. The highest praises I can give this comic. I'm absolutely thoroughly enjoying myself. I'm like you. I, I want the entire trade now. I want to read this thing from beginning to end now. I don't have the patience to wait another how many months for this to be over. But I I, I mean that in, in the highest compliment at this point. Yeah, as far as the Guy Gardner thing, I, I, I think that's more the characterization of Guy when he first was introduced. How he sort of hero worshipped Hal. Uh, yeah. Whenever he got to fill in, it was such a, a big thing. But yeah, he seems to have gotten over that over the years. He still has great respect for Hal, but yeah, it's it's a little bit of Tom going back to the earlier characterization of of the character, which I you know like like you said, I, I don't necessarily mind it. It works in the the context of the story. So yeah, uh, all right, let's move on. We've got uh, the Flash number seven seventy seven. This is from writer Jeremy Adams. Fernando Passerin and Matt Ryan are the artists. Jeremy Cox does the color. Rob Lee on letters. I know you've really been digging Flash, so what do you think of this issue? Um, well, this issue, Jeremy Adams, I mean, he, uh, he continues to uh, weave a story that puts a smile on my face. Once again, we get, we get great action sequences juxtaposed alongside uh, Wally West family. And uh, we, we get we get more of it here, and and to great effect. Last issue ended with um, last issue ended with uh, Flash meeting up uh, well, in an adventure with Doctor Fate in an issue what where you could flip the page of the comic and you could it was kind of a meta type of issue, but it ended with him ultimately meeting up with Justice League Dark, and this this the title of this particular issue so, is Vengeance. Is vengeance is mine, and um, Fernando Pastrana and Matt Ryan—they uh, combine their artistic talents and do a fantastic job. And 
what Jeremy Adams does here to great effect is that he he gives a lot of intelligence to Wally West. I like that. Wally West is the guy that steps up to the plate and actually figures things out for Justice League Dark. There's a wonderful sequence here where, I mean, they're essentially on Gem World and they're they're looking for Eclipso. And Eclipso is sort of like a magical being who's, who always uses these, you know, who, who needs to focus his powers through like dark crystals. And he's on Gem World and all these magical members of Justice League Dark, you know, uh, John Constantine, Ragman, Zatanna, the demon, uh, Bibbo, the detective chimp. All these characters, Dr. Fate, uh, uh, Amethyst, Princess of Gem World, they're trying to figure out how to find Eclipso and what, what, what his motive is. And they end up, uh, they end up ultimately uh, locating, uh, again, through Wally West. Wall, it's Wally West's actions that ultimately lead them to the imprison where Dark Opal, the, the arch nemesis of, Princess, of Amethyst is, this Dark Opal character. And... You know, they want to use Dark Opal to lead them to where Eclipso is. and But they're still trying to figure out what would Eclipso's agenda be. And it, it it's Wally West it, it has a just a, an amazing callback where he, he remembers something that uh, from his past where he basically says, you know, it's not science. You guys, I mean, John Constantine almost tries to make a joke out of... Uh, out of Wally West saying, you know, here's, you know, here's the speedster. He's going to help us figure out, you know, what Eclipso is doing. And Wally West does that. He says, you know, we're on gem world. So if you're, if you're going to, if you're going to locate the largest gem in the heart of gem world, well, obviously Eclipso is going to use that. It's basic science. And, and I like how they did that. So Wally West, you know, just like they, Wally West had something to contribute when he, he was hired by Mr. Terrific had he had something to contribute to the scientists. Uh, once again, Wally West has something to contribute even to uh, powerful sorcerers and and beings of magical power here with Justice League Dark. I thought it was very well done, entertaining. All this is alongside a wonderful backup, or not a backup, sorry. Uh, it's juxtaposed with scenes of Jay and Irie in, and they have some high school shenanigans where uh, Jay, where where. Irie is, uh, Irie is, is, gets involved, uh, with some, uh, some school shenanigans with her best friend, Maxine. And they're sort of like, uh, they're, they're almost like they both, they're both redheads. So they're, I, I guess you could say they're, uh, uh, what do you call it? Twins. They're hair twins. Cause they're, they're both redheads. And Jay, Jay has given Irie all his powers. Like he's so, cause Wally, because their dad doesn't want them to Jay to have all his powers of the of the Speed Force has, but so Irie has most of the powers, and just wonderful dialogue between mom between Linda and the kids, and just the the the, the machinations of what's going on. It's this is a, this is a it feels like a family drama, and they're wondering where their dad is, and then he's with Justice League Dark. Jeremy Adams here is having so much fun with this, and I just. I'm really enjoying this. This is probably what it's probably tied for first or my second favorite of the week. Um, uh, God, there's, there's, well, there's a solid three comics. I love this week. I'm really enjoying this. I, the, there's, there's a hint of a villain at the end that might, might come to haunt Jay and Irie. It looks like blockbuster at the end in the shadows in the back. It, it, it looks like blockbuster, but maybe it's another villain. I'm not sure who it is, but I, I'm loving this. Uh, the, the, 
art. Matt Ryan and Fernando Passer on the art. Fantastic. Jeremy Cox on the colors. They just pop off the page, especially on those sequences in Gem World where they have a giant, almost like Dune-like worm chasing the Flash underground, smashing into this crystalline wall that falls apart where Dark Opal is revealed. And oh, it's just, this is a fun comic. Like just continues to impress the hell out of me. Yeah, for me, the colors are the most impressive thing. Jeremy Cox's colors are very bright, very sort of uh, traditionally superheroic. I think it helps to set the mood for the comic very, very well. Uh, in, in terms of the story itself, it's fine. I don't have the love for Wally West that, that you do. Wally West is not who I would consider my Flash, despite the fact I've read more Wally West Flash. Well, maybe I've cut, maybe I've caught up with Barry Allen now, but... Barry Allen was the Flash that I first read, but it was right around 320-ish when I started reading that. It ended at 350, so I maybe read it for like two and a half, three years. When And it wasn't honestly that great because it was when he was on trial for killing Professor Zoom, uh, and it was kind of boring. But I don't know. Barry Allen's always been my Flash, despite – I think that in the beginning, Wally, I was a little more invested in Wally, but I never read that much of – the, the Wally West era when it was Linda and it was the kids. And so I don't have the, the, the nostalgia for it uh, that a lot of people do. So this is, for me, this is fine. It's interesting. Um, I, I find that, I mean, that, honestly, this isn't a flash comic, this particular issue. Like there, we actually get very little Wally, you know, we get almost as much of the justice league dark as we get Wally. And we certainly get more of Jay and Irie than we do of, of the flash. So, you know, Flash family, I guess. Uh, but for, for fans of Wally who loved that era of his family and lamented them being gone and not brought back in the new 52, I can see why you're, you're totally going to love this. Uh, for, for me, it's just okay. Uh, if, if Irie can't see what bad news Maxine is, oh boy, uh, maybe she's not <laughs> as smart as I've given her credit for being in the past. Uh, Jay obviously sees it, but I don't know, maybe she's blinded by the the friendship, but yeah, clearly. And I wonder if, is Maxine even a little girl or is she a villain in disguise or, uh, or somebody pretending to be a little girl? I guess we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, but yeah, like Rocky said, clearly there's, there's a menace lurking right behind either Blockbuster or I don't know, Solomon Grundy. I mean, long hair. So definitely looks more like Blockbuster. So I guess we'll see. Uh, all right. Up next, Justice League number 70, uh, written by Brian Michael Bendis. We've got art by <laughs> Phil Hester. Inks are by Eric Gapster. So I guess pencils by Phil Hester, inks by Eric Gapster, colors by Ramilla Fardo Jr., letters by Josh Reed. I hate that I have to go first here. Um, I'm, I'm going to keep it. I'm going to keep it really short. I mean, I could I could point out this or that or the other thing. Anybody who listens to our DC Spotlights knows we're not the biggest Bendis fans, um, and I want to like this. I do, but you know, like I've said in the, in the past about Phil Hester's style, his style is not that great when it comes to drawing superheroes. It's too angular. It's too blocky doesn't give a great sense of movement. And then when you're asking him to draw multiple characters, like you, like he needs to in, in justice league, it's even exacerbated. And then not only that, not only is he asked to draw multiple superheroes, he's asked to draw multiple super villains because they're going up against the Royal flush gang. 
Now, correct me if I'm wrong, and maybe you feel differently, Rocky, but to me, the Royal Flush Gang have always been somewhat of a joke. Like, not very formidable, not very much of a threat. And Bendis is trying to turn them into this, like, world-ending threat that they're, they can rival the, the Justice League. And, you know, it's this yeah. is all still tied up in Leviathan and, and all the other nonsense Bendis has going on. And yeah, it's no. just getting more and more convoluted and just not very good. Yeah. And I, we know Bendis is leaving Justice League. Hold your applause till I'm done. Um, it can't, he can't come soon enough. He, he's just, he's not suited for this title. He's just, he's not sorry. Yeah, no, I, so, I agree. I mean, I agree. And, and, and the, the Royal flush gang, isn't that, isn't that impressive, but you got to wonder if it's a little bit tongue in cheek just to interject a bit. I know I interrupted you, but uh, you know, even, no, even I'm Leviathan, done. even Leviathan says, so, so, I don't want to say anything more about this. So, okay. But even Leviathan here, you know, I don't, Leviathan has to be joking because he actually says that. He actually tells the Royal Flush Gang. I mean, this is Mark Shaw. I'm Mark Shaw. I'm Leviathan. I think you guys are underrated. I'm, you guys really impress me. Well, coming from Mark Shaw, who we've already seen basically killed. He's been killed. He's dead. He's killed because he was a joke. He was killed off in his own bloody series, for Christ, for, for God's sakes. Check me. I mean, we know that Mark Shaw is a joke. This is where the continuity is out of whack. So... The continuity, Bendis has never been good with continuity to begin with. And and I'll even go so far as to say that even though I could I might be wrong on this, I'll even say that maybe that's not all Bendis' fault because DC continuity has been wonky at the best of times. And so I I'm not gonna put that all on Bendis. But uh, you know, th- this is already a, a, a stale dated storyline. Superman's Superman shouldn't even be in this comic. I mean, this is I mean, th- this is an old storyline. Who cares about the Royal Flush Gang? I will say this, trying to put a positive spin on this, I like the idea of the Royal Flush Gang. And I get some sense here where they want to pull off a heist. The Royal Flush Gang, they want to pull up, pull off an ultimate heist. And they want to be able to to do that and pull one over on the Justice League. And so and so the idea that the Royal Flush Gang was responsible for uh maybe, you know, manipulating the Damon Rose, Lois Lane's brother, and manipulating all these things that have happened so far that it's it's been the Royal Flush Gang that's been doing this all along. It's it's it does seem like this is something that the a Royal Flush Gang it does seem to be, I think, out of their higher than their pay grade. But this issue, this is actually part two of and this title this issue is called The Biggest Score Ever, part two. Well it's a big score, but it's a big score for the Royal Flush Gang. And it's the and they they part of their the reason why the the uh, the uh, Fortress of Solitude was stolen the it's that was pulled off by the Royal Flush Gang they stole the Fortress of Solitude. There is an absurd exchange between Black Adam and Superman. The dialogue is again I mean I mean I know we talk about Bendis's dialogue but this is incredible. Um, this I mean this. Can you imagine this exchange between Black Adam and Superman? Because this is actually in the comic book. Black Adam says, now I see it. You should let go of your feelings more. It's better for you in the long run. This is what he says to Superman. Superman says, help me find the for- fortress. And and then Black Adam says, I just gave you some wisdom of Zahuti for free. And he says, thank you. Uh, and then he, he says to Superman, uh, this, is what, this is what you look like when you're very upset? Yes, good to know. You've seen me upset before. You've made me this upset before. This is, 
this dialogue is just ridiculous. It's so stupid. Like, I just, this, this is like a, this would be like a couple of first graders going and imagine a conversation between, like, this, this doesn't move the narrative. I mean, Superman, I mean, literally Superman, Black Adam, are, they're just commenting on the fact that the fortress is gone. That's it. They're just, they're just talking about it. It, it disappeared last issue, but they're just, they're just making the observation that the fortress is gone and Black Adam is saying, why aren't you more upset? This is you upset. This is a, it's just, this is the stuff that is so terrible. And then, you know, we're supposed to care that this is a big deal because Superman has all these terribly uh, crazy things and he's got all this alien tech at the Fortress of Solitude and it's been stolen. And there's just, none of this has any stakes. We know this is going nowhere. And who, who, talks about the Royal Flush Gang. I mean, this, who cares? I, this is just, it makes me just want to shake my head. Uh, but in, in any event, uh, uh, th this is, this is what happens when you, uh, unfortunately, virtually everything that Bendis has brought to DC has been a failure in terms of a narrative. And unfortunately, so much of it is incorporated in this issue. A checkmate, Leviathan, uh, Leviathan being leader of Markovia, uh, the Royal Flush Gang, uh, the the bad dialogue, the it, it's cringeworthy stuff, and it's all crammed in one issue. He couldn't leave this title soon enough. He couldn't leave this title soon enough. The only saving grace for this title is what it's always been, and that is the Justice League Dark backup, which uh, you can talk about first if you want. Yeah, um, like like you said, it's. It's clearly the highlight. Um, I I do sort of, and, and we talked about it when we did the Justice League Dark Annual. It, that wasn't as good as what these backups have been, which is so strange to me because not only did, did Rom V get more than eight pages, he got more than he would get in a regular, the regular issue. And it was a bit of setup for this, but this is sort of continuing the, the regular narrative. So um, we get Constantine trying to reach Zatanna in a unique way by basically impersonating her father, which poor, poor Zatanna, right? Like here we see her basically nearly transformed into the upside down man. We saw her in DC Vampires 3, uh, DC versus Vampires 3 turned into a vampire, which I didn't comment on, but <laughs> that was another thing that sort of lacked a ring of truth to me. I mean, if anybody's going to be able to know vampires, see vampires, prevent themselves from being turned into a vampire, you'd think it would be one of DC's preeminent magic users, but Anyway, I, I forgot to mention that, but yeah, here, um, like I said, Constantine is is trying to to reach her by you know impersonating her father. Whether or not she can finally be purged of the upside down man once and for all, I guess we'll have to to wait and see because she still is very much struggling. But I, I like that. I like that struggle. Um, it's it it's humanizing her. Uh, there's always the sort of uh, risk when you write Zatanna of making her too powerful, and basically you can just choose to have her speak anything you want to happen in reverse and it happens. Right. So I appreciate that James Tynan uh, and then him handing the baton off to Rom V hasn't chose to just go ex deus machina with, um, with Zatanna and make the same mistakes that Marvel's made with Scarlet Witch, right? Whenever you need a big thing to happen in the Marvel universe, like no more mutants, just give it to Scarlet Witch. But then over the years, they've done it so many times. Now they've messed up the character of Scarlet Witch. She has all this trauma because of all these huge momentous things that she's done, including, you know, causing the death of thousands of mutants. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm glad that 
the powers that be at DC, or maybe it's the writers. Maybe we give all the credit to Tynan and Rom V. They haven't done that. Um, in terms of the the narrative for uh, for Merlin, who just last issue summoned Arion, um, sort of the last big before Aquaman, the last big well known ruler of Atlantis, sorcerer, and really links Atlantis in with its magic and its history. We didn't get a lot of advancement in that portion of the story. A little bit. Uh, as we see Merlin and Arion sort of escape. Um, I think that'll come next. But again, I, you know, we sound like a broken record, but Justice League Dark deserves its own title. I much rather would be getting a Justice League Dark full story every month and only have to suffer through eight pages of the regular JLA title. I would feel much better about my life. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's, it's so good. I can't wait to to read it all uh, in a collection where it's it'll flow even better instead of getting eight pages at a time. What are your thoughts, Rocky? Uh, I think it's worth noting uh, something that Merlin says to Dr. Fate, which he's, he said something similar, but he said he's more stark about it in, in this issue. And he, he uh, Merlin hinted at this in the future state issues, but he says to Dr. Fate here, Merlin says, uh, think, Dr. Fate, why is the balance of order and chaos forever tested here, meaning in this realm on, on, on Earth Prime, Earth Designate Zero? Why this realm? Why this planet, this universe? What, what comes from tempering a whole planet in the fires of conflict like this? And it, it's an interesting question because one of the things that's being explored it, for those of us who are reading Justice League Incarnate and who've read The uh, Infinite Frontier is, you know, there are there are certainly players and characters in the elsewhere in the DC multiverse, in particular the characters on Earth-8, that don't want to be involved in the multiverse. They're tired of multiversal wars. They, they resent Earth-Prime. They resent Earth-Designate Zero because bloody hell, it does seem to be that the, the mainstream DC universe is always, always having a crisis of some time. The balance of order and chaos is forever in, in some sort of flux. And, you know, of course, we can joke, we can joke about the crisis. Why is that? So Merlin poses an interesting question here. Now, I'm not sure if that question is going to be answered. Uh, Ram V, there's only one issue, one eight more pages, and Ram V is done uh, on this particular Justice League Dark uh, story. But it's interesting to note uh, that the answer to the question might be answered in the summer of 2022 uh, when we get into the next DC crisis. Uh, you know, so it's it's interesting. Uh, I I like the callback at the end where. Uh, with Wonder Woman returning, because Wonder Woman was part of Justice League Dark early on, Wonder Woman returns at the end to help Zatanna, because Zatanna feels alone that she doesn't have a fr friend, and it's nice to see Diana return to help Zatanna, you know, help overcome her the influence of the Upside Down Man, and they all are together as a team. Uh, I continue to love the uh, the art. The art's really good. I, I love the effect where, where they have this sort of like the magical little, uh, almost like... Uh, bubble around their heads like they're underwater <laughs> and and just sort of like the the magical little i guess air bubble around all of them and the effects and the coloring it's just it this is this is a it's a nice title it's beautiful i i, I definitely will be getting this as a trade when it when it comes out we've, we've talked about uh that if you're a justice league dark fan this is kind of a must to get as a trade i just wish that dc would have planned it uh better it shouldn't have been a backup and unfortunately the, this justice league dark title is 
I think it would get more more love if it wasn't so if it wasn't associated with Bendis's Justice League. That I think the the sales are terrible on on that. But I guess uh, we shall see. We'll see. You know this this title deserves this Justice League Dark deserves more love. Yeah, I definitely agree. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Harley Quinn number ten, Thorns, from writer Stephanie Phillips. Art in this issue is by Laura Braga. Colors are by Arif Prianto. Letters by Darren Bennett. Uh, finally, what uh, all the Harley Ivy fans have been waiting for, the the two of them back together after the events of uh, Fear State. So what are your thoughts, Rocky? Well, the first thing I got to say is I do I'm, – I'm glad it's a different interior artist here. And I say that with great respect to uh, Riley Rosmo. I I did get uh, – Riley Rosmo's art is on the cover of A. And I, I don't mean any disrespect to Riley Rosmo because I've gotten accustomed to his style of art. And I think, I think he has brought his own unique style to Harley Quinn. Uh, having said that, I do think that this will make more Harley – Quinn fans happy because it's it's a little bit more of a traditional uh, comic book style. So the artist uh, Laura Braga here, you know, definitely brings uh, some more familiarity, I think, with the characters. And this uh, this issue starts right off with um, the character Keepsake. Uh, ostensibly being killed by Hugo Strange because he he wants Hugo Strange because he he wants Hugo Strange to give him some information or he's going to report Hugo Strange to the authorities and sort of like fess up and and Hugo Strange takes out Keepsake Keepsake of course wanted to team up with he wanted Keepsake wanted he was obsessed with the Joker and he wanted Harley Quinn to team up with him and to be part of his own sort of team of uh, I guess super villains or here whatever he, whatever he was calling him there i forget what he calls him he he calls him his uh uh he has he has an interesting name for them here i'll just bring it on the screen here sorry god forbid i try to do more than one thing at once but um uh in any event let, let's uh let me let me just jump to the chase here Harley Quinn looks fantastic here. Laura Braga, Laura, Laura Braga does a fantastic job. You know, it's like she spent extra time on the pages with Harley Quinn and, and Ivy. There's a uh, page here where point where Pamela Isley shows up uh, at Harley Quinn's apartment, and she just looks fantastic. These both, I mean, and she even wants Harley to zipper, you know, do her zipper up in the back. There's, there's obviously there's some sexual innuendo here. These are gorgeous looking characters. This is, um, it, it honestly, it's hard to imagine Riley Rousmo trying this scene <laughs> because he just, he's got, he just has exaggerated proportions and sort of a, more of a, his particular style is, is not one that I would associate with some, with, with sexual innuendo in any way. Laura Bragger here nails it. And, uh, I like writer Stephanie Phillips does a good job here of creating some, some tension between Harley and Ivy. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is Harley is, is, is on Harley is on a sort of like a path of redemption herself, Harley. But Poison Ivy is not. Poison Ivy is still thinking in terms of the old ways. Poison Ivy just came off of, you know, of having her two minds, the poison and the ivy part, just merged. And so she, 
uh, Pamela wants to go back to being how how they used to be. You know, they used to be not. They used to be like you know two of the three Gotham girls where they get into trouble and Poison Ivy even wants to steal like a ruby, uh, steal a diamond from a museum that that they're at and and you know let's just run off and be together. You know, we we'll have all the money we need. And but Harley Harley's on a different quest. Harley's found herself. Harley feels that she's maybe found her type of calling where she, she's on a path of redemption and she, she's on a different life path now. And she tells Poison Ivy, you know, she tells Pamela, you have to find your path. We'll always be together, but, but you leave. You go your own way and then come back to me. You go and find your path like I've found mine. And it's, it's really nice. It's really nice. And we also get uh, uh, Harley Quinn's sidekick, Kevin. Uh, he's he's on a date at the same museum with his new girlfriend Sam that we met in the previous uh, ten issues, and it you know there's shenanigans uh, arise, uh, good dialogue. I mean if if you've been if you've been with this series so far, this is this is a nice payoff. This is a nice payoff, and and this is I, I guarantee. Obviously, you mentioned it before. People are going to be picking up this issue because you know this is the this is the issue that I think. I think Stephanie Phillips have probably wanted wanted to write out of more than any other because she finally gets to get they're finally they finally kiss they get together at the end and there's moments and and Pamela is Pamela and Harley is Harley and you know even Kevin has his moments this all this all comes to a head and it's it's really good to see I I think people are going to really like this issue if if now being critical of it I don't like keepsake uh, keepsake should should be taken off the playing field. Keepsake is still alive. He should have been killed off. He's not a particularly interesting character. I, I, I'm not a big fan of Keepsake. Next issue is going to be Keepsake's Revenge. I think he's a one-note wonder. I don't think he's particularly original. I think he's kind of... Uh, I think we should move past Keepsake. I'm not a big fan of Keepsake. And I think that aspect of this issue was... It's a remnant of Fair State that I just wish would go away. But... Um, but for Harley and Poison Ivy fans, this is this is going to be an absolute must buy. Yeah, uh, I agree. People who love Harley and Ivy uh, as a couple are definitely going to love this. I don't dislike them as a couple. I think they make a good couple. I think it makes sense. That being said, I'm not a big Harley fan, so whatever. <laughs> you know, it doesn't doesn't really make much sense. I I wonder how much. People who've been waiting for Harley and Ivy to get back together for so long, right? Like it's the question that I saw Stephanie Phillips get asked more than anything when she was announced that she was going to start writing Harley. Like as soon as that happened, well, when are you going to bring back Poison Ivy? Are you going to put them back together? You know, ever since Tom King sort of took Poison Ivy off the page in Heroes in Crisis, which people hated um, for various reasons, but that being one of them, uh, like, when is she going to come back? When is she going to come back? And it's taken all this time. And then even when Poison Ivy came back, she came back in two halves. And now finally the halves are together. And even now, you finally think they're going to be together. You get to see them on the page only to have Harley send Ivy away. Uh, so a bit anticlimactic. I don't know. Again, it doesn't bother me because I'm not invested in this relationship. Um, but I just wonder if some people might take exception to it. The other thing that I wonder about, um, the fact that so Harley, uh, Ivy rather, hasn't really cared too much about typical robbery type crime in, in many, many years. 
So it didn't necessarily ring true to me that she wanted to steal this diamond. I mean, she's much more concerned these days with, you know, the environment and making sure people don't destroy plants and they're taking care of the, the uh, ecology and global warming and that sort of thing. So that was a little strange to me. I kept waiting for poison ivy to be like, I was just testing you, you know, just wondering if you really had turned over a new leaf. So I thought that was a little strange. Um, sort of feel like there could have been a better way to send Ivy off because I do agree that Ivy does need to go off and sort of discover who she is after, you know, this, this change of, of being reborn and then split into two halves and, and brought back together. So there's a lot to like here, but I just thought that that was a, that was a little weird. Um, I don't know. It didn't, didn't hundred percent work for me, but uh, anyway, I, I do agree with you on the art, Laura Braga, uh, beautiful art fantastic I, I wonder if she'll stay on the book for a while i feel like she, she brings a lot to it although like you said that riley rosmos has kind of established his own sort of whimsy with the title uh which obviously isn't there with the braga art so i don't know you, you almost wish you had somebody that could sort of bring in the best aspects of the two which i i sort of feel like john timms chad harden obviously did did that back in the day when jimmy and amanda were writing it john timms as well but he's over on um Superman, son of Kal-El right now, but I feel like he'd be a good choice as well to bring back on the title. Uh, all right, ready to move on to Robin number nine. This is from writer Joshua Williamson. Roger Cruz handles the pencils. Norm Ratman on inks. Luis Guerrero on colors. Troy Petrie on letters. Uh, art first, Roger Cruz. So we, I don't know if he's the new regular artist on Robin, but I, he's on for a while, at least through the March, March solicits. What I like about his art is it's a little cleaner than what Gleb Melnikov does, but it has sort of that same energy that Gleb Melnikov has. So certainly in a, in a trade or what have you, I don't think it will be as jarring, um, but I, I, I love this art. Um, you know, I like, like the Gleb Melnikov art, uh, but the fact this is even a little cleaner, I, I think I like it even more. But again, that's just a personal preference, nothing against Gleb or anything. Uh, the colors are, are fantastic. Uh, really bright. I love the green that we get here uh, in the demon um, from Luis Guerrero. As far as the story goes, it's enjoyable, um, if not a little anticlimactic with what we were promised with the Lazarus tournament. This Lazarus tournament story from Joshua Williamson hasn't really been at all what we sort of expected or, or hoped. You know, I talked about not even necessarily wanting to read the Robin title because I'm not a Damien fan. But then when we got this idea of maybe this sort of enter the dragon or kickboxer type of tournament fighting feel that maybe it would be interesting. And that really hasn't been what it was until maybe the last couple of issues. Um, but I, I do like sort of the twist that it's taken here where the, the fighters have to team up to take on this demon. Um, and then the, the, there's a twist at the end that also might be interesting. Um, but we know that, that uh, Damien has to come back to. So he, get, he gets transported into the past somehow by his grandmother. Um, so what consequences that might have, I guess we'll have to wait and see, but it's not going to, he's not going to be stuck back there long because we know in only a couple of months, he's got to be back in Gotham city for a, a crossover with the Batman and, and district incorporated titles. So, um, so maybe just one more issue. I don't know that that would make sense in terms of the trade, uh, Next issue, issue 10, would be the last issue of, of the second trade. It's entitled Back to the Future, I guess. So, um, yeah, interesting in terms of what 
Williamson has done in subverting expectations, but at the same time, and we've talked about this, uh, about how we feel like he, Williamson has sort of turned back the clock on some of the character uh, growth and evolution of Damien. So I, I sort of feel like I don't even know who Damien is. Like there's, it's hinted at that he's grown and evolved and learned things throughout this story. Um, and, and we get a little bit of it here when he, he asks for help, which isn't really a Damien thing to do, but I don't know if, if Williamson has gotten Damien back to where he was before in terms of maturity or even surpassed that. Cause you would think after nine issues of his own series, you would think he would hopefully be even, you know, further along than he was when Williamson got a hold of the character instead of turning back the clock. So uh, I don't know if it'll be enough to make me care about the character in the long run anyway. Um, so maybe I'm not the target audience for this one either, but I know you're, you're a much bigger Damien fan than me, Rocky. So what'd you think of this? <laughs> Well, uh, I agree with you that, you know, if, if, if I'm being really critical, I could say, well, what did Damien really learn here? Well, there's an entire sequence where Damien is taken out rather handily by the demon because the demon has this almost like acidic like blood. And this, this demon is, is, is still in kind of a liquefied, semi-solid form. And the demon doesn't become completely physical until, until the demon can possess the, the body of, of, of uh, Hawk. And uh, of Connor, uh, Connor Hawk, uh, but he could never do that because Damien is preventing the demon from doing that. And then w when he's incapacitated, Damien has a dream and he, he hallucinates talking with Alfred. And then the big the big revelation, the big epiphany that Damien has is that he's got a surprise, surprise. He's got to ask for help now. On the one hand, you could say, well, you know, yeah, Damien is always, you know, he's always kind of a loner. But at, on the other hand. He's, he's led multiple teams before. I mean, Damien is very much a leader in many ways, or he's certainly done it in the past before. So that that might be, a, you know, not a big deal. I mean, so he finally asks for help. I think it takes away from the intelligence of everyone else. Did, did, did Really, I mean, did Ravager. I mean, Ravager made the comment saying, finally, you know, when Damien steps up to the plate and organizes everybody to fight the demon. Like, why didn't Ravager do that? Like did did the rest of these, this entire group of fighters are are they all retarded? Are they stupid? Do do they actually need Damien to tell them? By the way, you're all going to be killed, so maybe we should fight together. I mean, I mean, I get it. It's nice to have a leader, but did you really need Damien <laughs> to basically, of all people, to to rally the troops, so to speak? I mean, you. And again, I'm I'm sounding a little bit like an a hole saying that, but uh, the fact of the matter is, this is fun. If you're a Damien fan, this is actually Damien doing something heroic. He is asking for help. He's organizing the troops. Every it, it's cool to see everybody step up to the plate and and fight the demon and defeat him. And and I love how way they decapitate the demon. There's, there's really great action sequences. Roger Cruz on the pencils. I think this is a guy to watch. This is excellent art. This is the type. There, there's something just visceral and, and action-packed about the, the art just really pops off the page. The coloring is great. Uh, Louise, Louise Guerrera on the colors is great. Norm Rapun's, Rapun's ink, Rapun's inks uh, uh, compliment Roger Cruz's pencils very well. This is uh, very well done. This is, uh, I mean, I even liked Respawn in this issue. I can't believe I'm saying that, but he Respawn has a pretty cool moment where he wraps his chains around the demon and, and everyone pulls the, pulls the chains and they work as a team to decapitate the demon. 
And then at the end with with uh, Damien being sent in the past where he meets a young Ra's al Ghul, that's interesting because we'll probably learn more about the history of Ra's al Ghul. So moving forward, Joshua Williamson has set up what looks to be probably a fairly interesting uh, story arc moving forward uh, and uh, in a sort of a back to the future type of storyline moving forward. And maybe we'll even uh, get some more since he's been sent back in time, you got to wonder, did mother soul do this on purpose? Mother soul seemingly attacked him. And at first, you know, he disappeared and when his teammates probably think that he's been killed, but they probably don't know he's been sent back in time. Did mother soul send him back in time? Or was this something that was out of mother soul's control? If he has been sent back in time at mother soul's intentions then what's the purpose of sending him back in time what secrets is he going to learn about if he if he's if he sent back in time to meet a young razagal he's going to meet a younger mother soul because mother soul is of course razagal's mother so the plot might continue to thicken here so uh, joshua williamson's done a good job here uh this has been a fun comic uh, and this issue is probably the highlight i think I think a lot of people are going to be happy with this issue, and it's got a it's got a very interesting cliffhanger. I think so. I'm definitely, you know, I'm 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 still on board, and you know, I'll give credit what credit is due. I wasn't a big fan of Joshua Williamson's all of his comic book work, but he's won me over with this title. Yeah, and like I said, we got that um, that crossover coming up. I think it's called Shadow War, uh, which I don't know how much that t- ties in with Shadows of the Bat <laughs> that's going on. Yeah, because he's writing Batman as well, but. Um, it ties in with the next book we're going to talk about. It ties in with his Batman book, ties in with his Robin book, and it ties in with this other book that he's writing. I guess that does make it easy to do a crossover when you're writing three books, right? I mean, he's writing <laughs> uh, Infinite or Justice League Incarnate right now. It was Infinite Frontier, now Justice League Incarnate. Makes it easy to cross over when you're just talking to yourself about what needs to go on. So, uh, But not for a few months yet. This is Deathstroke Incorporated number four from the aforementioned Joshua Williamson, art by Howard Porter, Colored by Hi-Fi, letters are by Steve Wands. Uh, and we, we know last the last issue ended with Black Canary talking to, to Deathstroke and basically, um, or, or Deathstroke um, eavesdropping on Black Canary, I, I should say, while Black Canary was talking to Oracle. And they were both wondering if, is Deathstroke out for his own good? Does he know trust is is not who they say they are? Is he aware that Libra is is actually leading trust? So a, a lot of mystery to be solved. What do you think of this one, Rock? Uh, well, the 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 big player that was revealed the last issue was Libra, and I apologize because I butchered the name and the pronunciation. It's, it's Libra. I, I kept saying Libra last time, but anyways, it's, I believe it's the proper pronunciation is Libra. You said it right. I continue to say it wrong, but anyway. <laughs> okay. uh, so uh, Libra is a character that is uh, has worked with Darkseid in the past, leading into Final Crisis, Grant Morrison's Final Crisis. And for Libra now to suddenly make an appearance, uh, this this Juliet Ballantine, it was Justin Ballantine was uh, the original Libra. This Juliet Ballantine is now running Trust. Well, both both Black Canary and and Slade Wilson here, they're you know. They're questioning each other's motives, and they're both questioning the true motives of trust, the organization that they've been recruited to. And they've been, as Slade Wilson found out from the cheetah last issue when he took out the cheetah, that that this is uh, that trust is basically Libra, and and uh, there, there's and and even Black Canary discovered she discovered the costume of Libra. 
So with the scales and the balance, and so she knows she knows that they're up to no good. And she knows that they're usually uh, that Libra is associated with the Society of Secret Villains or you know, or, or Legion, you know, whatever the case might be. And so she doesn't know what the hell's going on. Neither does Slade, and they don't trust each other. So and understandably so. Joshua Williamson has done a good job here of making me. I can understand why Dinah Lance is suspicious of Slade Wilson. And I can understand why Slade Wilson is suspicious of Dinah Lance. And um, the way, the way this all comes together is in at least twice in this issue, I went from thinking, well, maybe Julia Ballantyne is, is trying to balance the scales and but there's so much evil in the world. She wants to create more justice. There has to be more good. And there was there was a there's a point in here where that it does appear to be the case. And then at one point, when Slade Wilson confronts Julia Ballantyne, they get attacked by the Legion of Doom. And you think it's the Legion of Doom. There's this huge battle that ensues. It looks like Julia Ballantyne is actually is 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 actually taken out and and. and you know, mortally wounded, and she's saying her last gasps of, of life and talking to, to Dinah Lance about, you know, please, uh, you know, I, I did this to sort of balance the scales against evil. And it ends up being one massive illusion by Dr. Destiny and that Juliet Ballantyne is in fact Libra and she is in fact, she is in fact kind of evil. But at the same time, she talks about saving the multiverse. So... Me, so it's clear, I think, that Libra is about Juliet Valentine. Juliet Valentine, sorry, <laughs> Juliet Valentine is Libra. She is about right, she's about balancing the scales, but she's prepared. I think she can flip flop at any time because we're not, it's not clear exactly what the agenda of Libra is, other than her goal is she feels that she needs to save the multiverse and what she's doing. She's feeling that she, she, her feelings are are that what she's doing as Libra or is it's playing a role in what will ultimately save the multiverse. And because we know that Joshua Williamson, who's writing this title, is also writing Justice League Carnage, we know that Darkseid and all these other multiversal players, from Eclipso to uh, to the Gentry to all these other major players in the on the multiverse are coming to try to get control of the crack of the multiverse to try to take control and, and, and to control the multiverse. We know that now Libra is, she clearly wants to somehow balance the scales. How the hell she plans on doing that? Cause she seems to be a smaller player here on just one of the earths. I'm not sure, but they end up, she ends up, Libra ends up, or Dr. Destiny ends up transporting. It looks like, Black Canary and uh, Slade Wilson to sort of like a, a, a ghost realm. And unfortunately, because everything was Prometheus played a role and Dr. Destiny played a role in creating all these illusions, it looks as if uh, Dinah, she accident she intentionally used her sonic cry to take out Deathstroke when she thought that he, she, he was her enemy. <laughs> and unfortunately, it might in fact have killed Deathstroke and and they end up ultimately in the in what appears to be some kind of ghost sector, and she, Black Canary fe fears that she she kills him, but it looks like because they're in a ghost sector, 
We know there's so many resurrections in the DC universe now, whether you're going to get resurrected either by Lazarus resin or Lazarus pills, or if you're fortunate enough to die in the ghost in this ghost realm where they end up in this issue, I guess. They're they're handing out resurrection like candy in the DC universe, I think. But in any event, it's curious to see exactly what is Libra's plan here. Why does she think, she says, good and evil, that is the only way to save the multiverse. There must be balance. But how the hell Libra chooses or decides what she has to do to create that balance. I mean, that's anybody's guess. So this this narrative could go anywhere. Uh, so I'm in for the long haul here. I'm I'm having fun with this issue. The art's pretty good. Howard, I think it's still Howard Porter, isn't it? Or is yep. it a, yeah. And uh, it's working for me. You know, I don't know. What do you think? Are you lost yet? No, no. <laughs> I mean, I mean, this is another one where it's like, wait, what's going on? Um, only because it, it wasn't, I mean, we had so many questions about who Trust was and who was behind it. And wait, now Trust, I mean, we found out last issue, Trust is signing in with Libra and and Ballantyne. I think it was Eric Ballantyne, right? It was the original Libra. And now this is his sister and she's Libra. And yeah, what the hell's going on? And then on top of everything, just when we think we know what's going on, the Legion of Doom shows up. And I was ready to be like, wait, what? How's the Legion of Doom showing up? They, they're they disbanded. How is this even a thing? And then come to find out that it's not really the Legion of Doom because it's all an illusion by dr destiny like you were saying so yeah it really confused but at the same time when it was the legion of doom that showed up that that did all of a sudden give this entire series a different feel much more traditionally super heroic because before it felt much more like like the espionage corner of the dcu right like the leviathan argus uh deo corner trust you know just another acronym and and sort of behind the scenes and, and puppet mastering and what have you. And now all of a sudden we've got Gorilla Grodd and we've got Black Hand and we've got Lex Luthor. But no, 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 never mind that none of that was true. We actually have Prometheus and and, and Dr. Destiny. So yeah, very, very strange. And and what exactly is this world that, that Black Canary got sent into and we're, we're hinted at that she's going to face Deathstroke's ghost next? And what is what is that going to do? And And to your point earlier about so is Libra actually, is Julia Ballantyne a bad guy or a good guy? Clearly she's on her own side. She's talking about saving the multiverse. But just because you want to save the multiverse doesn't mean you're not out for your own best interests. So yeah, not a surprise to see Joshua Williamson take a more of a street level character like Deathstroke and tie it into multiverse and uh, you know much bigger goings on with the, the sort of the bigger overall story that's being told in the DC universe. Cause like I mentioned, he's writing justice league incarnate as well. So why not have all your stuff tie in, in, uh, in, in the best way. I'm still not sure. And I've said this before. I'm still not sure why this is called Deathstroke incorporated and not just Deathstroke. Cause it, yeah. it is just, Deathstroke. it is just Deathstroke. We know in Christopher priest Deathstroke run, he, he had Slade Wilson try to you know, become a hero and he had teammates and it was much more of a Deathstroke Incorporated kind of thing. This this is not that. So I'm not sure why it's called Deathstroke Incorporated when it's a Black Canary and Deathstroke story about how they're taking out trust. So I don't know. But yeah, uh, the Howard Porter art, like you said, is fantastic. Great color work as well by Hi-Fi that, that really sort of uh, helps accentuate the, the big kinetic battle scenes that Porter's drawing here. So yeah, great job artistically. 
Uh, all right, up to the last book we're going to talk about. This is a black label book. It's from writer Jeff Lemire. We have Doug Monkey on art, David Barron on color, Steve Wands on letters. It's called Swamp Thing Green Hell, and it's pretty damn good. Uh, it's telling this dystopian story of the future where I guess climate change got to the point where most of the world is underwater. We meet some scavengers, some people that are just trying to get along and and uh, survive as best they can, but there's different factions and they sort of fight and, uh, and uh, sort of scrap over the, uh, the few resources that are left. Meanwhile, the red, the black and the green or the, the blood, the rot and the, uh, and the, I think it's still called the green <laughs> uh, yeah. or nature, what have you, the three sort of different aspects uh, of which have all had different avatars over, over time. They've decided that they want to wipe out the last dregs of humanity and, and completely start over. And so they create a new swamp thing uh, to go after and, and kill the last few remnants of of the world. Uh, and so a couple of the scavengers, a couple of the, the, the few people that are left, they go to talk to this mysterious man in, in the lighthouse that's been hit, hinted at throughout the issue, hinted at that he's not the best guy that you want to mess with uh, and, and is bad news. And so they, but they have no choice at this point. And who, who is it that inhabits the lighthouse? Who do you not want to have anything to do with making a deal with the devil as it were? Uh, but John Constantine himself, <laughs> who calls back an old avatar of the green, very familiar. He calls back Alec Holland. So um from the, the fantastic line work and detail of Doug Monkey to the beautiful colors from David Barron. Uh, this is just fantastic. Um, you know, as much as I've been enjoying what Rom V has been doing and the regular Swamp Thing title with uh, this new, uh, this new Swamp Thing, Levi Kamei, man, I, there's just something about having Alec Holland as Swamp Thing that just, that just works. And, and I, I, I don't even know that I, noticed it um or realized i was missing it until it was brought back here by by jeff lemire so i mean th this is just great i mean the the dialogue the way lemire through very natural use of language instead of you know these giant exposition boxes through na just natural very natural sounding conversation between these different scavengers and their children or or each other he, he paints a picture of this world that's dystopian and, and gives us so much context about what's going on and the struggles that they have and finding food and just surviving day to day. I mean, this is how it's done, right? This is how it's done as opposed to, you know, all those uh, Spawn comics that we've read recently. No, and nothing against those. They're very much of their time in the early 90s uh, where we just get these walls of text from Todd McFarlane with all this exposition to sort of explain how, how things are as opposed to here where like I said, through very sort of natural language from, from Jeff Lemire, we get all this context and information. So yeah, this, this is just awesome. It's so good. Uh, and, and I'm not even a Swamp Thing guy and this could maybe be, you know, granted we're only one issue in, so I won't say for sure, but this could be like my favorite Swamp Thing story I've ever read. Uh, it, it, it feels that way after a single issue already. That's how good it is. Uh, what did you think, Rocky? I, I was gonna I was gonna kick every time the whenever John Constantine is rendered uh 
he's always wearing the same trench coat and he's he's a chronic smoker and uh and here he's you know when he finally makes an appearance John Constantine makes his appearance and it surprised me I wasn't expecting John Constantine which I, I suppose I should I should have expected that the old man in the lighthouse was John Constantine especially since I mean John Constantine is obviously associated and originated with uh, with swamp thing but I, I thought I, it was, was going to be Alec, I thought it was going to be Alec Holland yeah, I I didn't know who it was. I, I thought I was expecting some misdirection that it was might be an obscure DC hero of some. It could be anybody. I I was I literally yeah. was I was clued out. I I didn't know who, to, but I didn't. I actually thought that this was so predictable that I wouldn't have guessed John Constantine. I don't mean that as an insult. This is good. I'm I'm glad it's John Constantine. This this is this is a great sto- uh, a good story. Uh, I I like the way this this mythology is being set up here. This is uh this starts off with uh just uh, a young a, a young girl by the name of Veronica. Her father uh Donald uh, uh is uh you know he obviously cares for his daughter. He wants to protect her and uh they're they're sort of in an old fishing village. Clearly the the it looks like the earth is slowly dying. The uh the, the waters are rising. The earth is dying. And the earth, the green and the red and the rot are seem to be in, in I, I don't know, like a, something is definitely out of sync. It's a lot of chaos is, is happening. The the rot serves the green. It also serves the red. And the, the and, and the decisions are made by the avatars of the green and the red that the, the green must purge the earth and that you got to purge and destroy all of humanity to start all over again. We've seen this we've seen this thing play out in multiple different types of swamp thing storylines where the green, you know, can can be and the red can obviously be potentially destructive to humanity. The idea that nature can start new by destroying the life now and then starting all over. So in that respect, that 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 idea, that concept is not new. But what we're uh, we're Jeff Lemire shines here as the writer is that it, it's the character work. It, it it it's just really good character work. Uh, I love the fact that you know this this Donald character, uh, his wife Sarah. Uh, ultimately, it's revealed she ended up killing herself sometime in the past. But Sarah's got her brother, who is sort of a member of another tribe or another group of people that keep raiding the island. And this it's Sarah's brother that ends up being killed. Uh, and becoming this new swamp thing, and so the, the the mystery here is at the end of this issue is okay. So we, I thought that the swamp thing that appeared here clearly is an evil swamp thing. I thought this was swamp thing because this this series is called. I mean, it's called Green Hell. So swamp thing, I figured might be the bad guy in this because this is a black label story. I, I I guess well maybe swamp thing is the bad guy in this swamp thing Green Hell, but yet Alec Holland comes back it's john constantine that calls upon alec holland as who appears at the end as the swamp thing so if alec holland is back as the swamp thing to take on the green well then who's the swamp thing i guess there's a new swamp thing i didn't think that i didn't know there could be two swamp things i thought there could only be one avatar of the green so yeah i thought so too yeah so i'm a little bit confused but maybe maybe you know i've only really started to get into swamp thing thanks to ram v's amazing run so maybe there's more to the mythology of swamp thing that i'm not familiar with but then again this is black label jeff lemire is at liberty to create whatever mythology he wants for swamp thing so there's no there's nothing that says that he's beholden to any particular iteration of the character 
And I kind of like that because this is all new to me and this is an easy to follow narrative. It's easy to read. It's easy to get into. The art is fantastic. You know, Doug Mankey on, on the art, his line weights are very different when he inks his own work here. Because uh, usually he's got the, the, you know, when he has other people ink his, his, his art, it looks different. This is, this is not the type of work uh, look that I would associate with Doug Mankey's art. I'm thinking of, I think back to his Justice League Elite days and his Final Crisis uh, compilation. His art, his art there is different. I actually like this. I prefer this. This has more of a visceral feel to it, a more realistic feel to it, a more human yeah, feel. Yeah, the line it. weights are are lighter. Yeah, I feel like because I, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Sometimes when other people ink him, the line weights are heavier and it it almost feels over-rendered. To me, the way Ethan Van Skyver's work looks, it's it's too much. There's too much detail. It's distracting. Yeah. It doesn't look real. Yeah, but it, it, it works here. It works here for this, especially for, for setting the tone and the mood of this is, because this is a horrific, this is, this feels like end of the world stuff, uh, end of the world ap- apocalyptic events. And even with the father here, Donald, sending his daughter off saying, you know, you know, please run away. If I don't come back, keep running, go, go north and keep running. And if I don't meet you at dawn, keep on going. Don't wait for me. But unfortunately, the daughter ends up being intercepted by old George, old man George, who goes to the lighthouse where they end up meeting up with John Constantine and they call upon Alec Holland Swamp Thing. And that's how the issue ends. So I'm, I'm, you know, the great thing about this is I'm not a Swamp Thing expert at all. I found this easy to follow, easy to get into. I, you don't, I don't need to know. I don't know a lot about the rot or the green or the red and I don't need to. This is just cool. When Alec Holland shows up, I don't know where the hell Alec Holland has been as the Swamp Thing. It's almost like he was on vacation and he, he resented John Constantine calling him. But I like this. I really enjoy this. And I'm really curious to see where this is going to go. Yeah, the other thing is uh, when he, when John Constantine summons Alec Holland back, Alan Holland looks very much like, like we expect Swamp Thing to look. As opposed to you know Sarah's brother, like you mentioned, uh, the the brother-in-law of the main character, uh, he's a much more sort of demonic-looking Swamp Thing with with all these different uh, tentacles and and whatnot. So uh, that that's a that's a difference as well, and that, that yeah. plays into the story very very well. So yeah, fantastic. Uh, really really enjoyed it. Like uh, like you said, uh, there are a few other. DC books that I'll mention that are coming out this week. We, we've talked about all the regular issues, uh, but there are a couple of collections. Uh, we've got Green Arrow, the Longbow Hunter Saga Omnibus Volume 2 hardcover. That's the uh, classic Mike Grell Green Arrow. Uh, we've got Batman Superman, the Archive of Worlds hardcover. That's the Gene Luen Yang Batman Superman that we love so much uh, with the fantastic art by Yvonne Reese. And then the Superman Red and Blue hardcover, which collects all the Superman Red and Blue stories that we that we uh, spotlighted recently. So uh, that's it for DC this week. Uh, what were your, I mean, no, you had several that you thought were fantastic, Rocky. If you had to pick one or two, maybe if, you, if it's a tie, uh, favorite book, DC book this week. Ah, man, I, th- this is a tough one. Uh, I think my, in my heart of hearts, I, I really like Tom King's uh, The Human Target. I really enjoyed that one. Uh, but the, the horror side of me, it's such a different feel of a comic. Swamp Thing Green Hell is, is, is really good too. <laughs> so, uh, but I'll go with the human target. Close second, Swamp Thing uh, Green Hell. And I, 
I, I look, I, I got to give credit to I'm enjoying DC versus vampires and action comics with uh, Mongol. I mean, overall, I, I, I quite enjoyed the, a good number of the, the, the issues this week. And even Deathstroke Task Force Z were, was good. Robin was fun. The, the majority of the comics I read this week, I, I enjoyed. I enjoyed. But I'll, I'll give it with the human target. Human target, and I would encourage people listening. Please go listen to uh, the, the Comic Source podcast. Listen to the interview that uh, Jace does with uh, Tom King. It's very, you know, it's very interesting. It's very revealing. Uh, one thing you can say what you want about Tom King. I know that he's a divisive writer in some people's minds, but you know, he's got a Tom King has a good, healthy dose of self awareness. He knows what people say about him, and uh, he's got a healthy sense of humor about it. And it's definitely worth always worth listening to uh, his interview, especially when you're doing the uh, asking the questions, Jace. Great, appreciate that, Rocky. Uh, I, I too had the same top two as you did. Uh, you, you picked Human Target. I'll pick uh, Swamp Thing, uh, Green <laughs> Hell as as my favorite, just slightly beating out the the Tom King Human Target. I wasn't sure which one I was going to choose, but the fact that you picked uh, Human Target. I'll go the other way to balance it out. So yeah, I, could, I mean, those are the top two. Um, but I'm glad you mentioned Task Force Z. I know you enjoyed Flash as well. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I, overall, pretty pretty strong. I, I kind of feel like the two, I mean, don't get us wrong, like the, the Teen Titans Academy book has had some some issues throughout. We've we've mentioned them. Not, not that I don't think, and we've talked about this, that Tim Sheridan and his Sheridan verse don't have some a, a lot of potential, but it, it's falling down a little bit in the execution. But for me, the, the two Aquaman books, uh, the, the Deep Target and, and the Aquaman Becoming were sort of the most confusing for me, which is why they're sort of a step down this week. But but overall, very high quality. I mean, Superman 78, we thought was fantastic. Mm-hmm. So yeah, over, uh, uh, you know, Action Comics. Overall, really, really strong week to finish out the year. Obviously, we'll be back in the new year with more uh, DC spotlights. So we'll see how that all plays out uh, next year and, and the, the daily spawn uh, episodes that we hope to kick off as well. So we hope you're uh, you're all here for that. Just a quick reminder, if you uh, are listening to us on the audio only, be sure you head over to YouTube and subscribe to Rocky's channel. It's comic space boom exclamation point. Uh, ring the notification bell, like this video, subscribe so you know when new content comes out. Conversely, if you always check us out on YouTube, be sure you head over to your favorite podcasting platform or application. Do a search for the comic source and subscribe there as well so you don't miss out on any, any of our audio content. Uh, as well. So uh, for the first time, I'll, I'll mention for you sort of uh, best of people, people that like listicles and all that sort of thing. We have coming up in January is our other big episode, uh, probably the episode I, I look forward to every year the most. I mean, there are really cool interviews that I get to do and those may top them, but I never know, you know, necessarily when those are going to happen. As opposed to every year in January, we always do our best of the Comic Source Awards. And that's, it's just such a fun time to be able to shout out comics that people may have missed and to give credit where credit's due to a lot of the creators that are uh, working so hard to create these books that we love. So that'll be coming up as well. I think this year it's just going to be Rocky and I, so you guys may get away with less than a four, two hour, four part episode to, uh, <laughs> to uh, have all books. Although no promises, we, you know, even with just Rocky and I, we can go on uh, as you guys all know. So uh, anyway, that's going to do it for this episode. Anything to add it here at the end, Rock? Uh, no, just, uh, you know, uh, happy holidays to everyone. Uh, it's been a good year and, uh, come back and listen to our, uh, 
you know, in January for sure, we're, we're going to be continuing to do the DC Weekly thing. We're going to be reviewing the Spawn issues. It's going to be an interesting year. And so, uh, yeah, well, uh, bigger and better. We'll see. Yep, exactly. So uh, we appreciate you all joining us as always, and we'll talk to you next time. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.